a word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point this week is through chapter 20 of Brandon Sanderson's The Bands of Mourning, the currently final installment in Era 2 of Mistborn. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I didn't know how to introduce the book this this time, because that's only true for like another week and a half or so, right? Yeah, you've you've actually dated the podcast officially. Like we were timeless before this moment, and you right there Shit. dated us. In 2022, it's your fault. PJ, we worked so hard. We, today is November 6th, 2022. It is 9, 10 a.m. Central Time. And you guys <laughs> are hearing this at a different time, probably. Yes. This is a special brunch episode because PJ and I have to record it this way this week. And we actually have to do a ton of recordings over the course of this next week to prepare for dragon steel so before we talk about the episode and what we're going to be talking about specifically just want to mention if any of you guys are going to dragon steel we are going to be there and speaking so either you can come listen to our live recording of the wrap-up episode if you'd like that's on tuesday november 15th at 11 in the yolin room so we'll be chatting there about all things relating to bands morning for a little bit over an hour and then after that, we're going to end before that. We're going to be around the convention. We'll be rocking swag. We'll have some some stickers and stuff to give out in addition to a couple of other things, some special keychains for people who attend. As long as we don't blow up the number, I guess we'll definitely have more than enough stickers for everyone. But first couple, first come, first serve. We'll we've figure got it like out. 50. I think we've got like 25 of each each of the two keychains and like 50 stickers. So perfect. We'll be all right. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So see you there. This is our last episode that we're that's coming out before Dragon Steel. So, you know, I mean, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because we'll have the Thursday episode will be our final episode in Bands of Morning and then we'll release the wrap up whenever and et cetera, et cetera. So yep. you and I both leave duper. on Saturday. Mm-hmm. So that weekend we'll be trying to find stuff to do. So if anybody has insight on things to do in Salt Lake City on the weekend. Let us know. Most people um, would say snowboarder ski, but unfortunately, we're not bringing those things. Clumsy, shit, and ill, <laughs> and ill prepared. <laughs> not like you can pack a full, you know, full garb in your backpack. So, yeah. What was the other thing that I was going to say? Oh yeah, and we have to record all of Secret History this week. So like, oh shit, yeah. We <laughs> we have a ton to do. It's going to be very exciting. So. Today is our third episode discussing Bands of Mourning by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 13 through 20. But before we do that, PJ, let's talk about our brunch drinks that we're having this morning. What are you having? I am having something from Liquid Intelligence by Dave Arnold, I think. I think that's the author. I'm having a sugared rye blended sour. So he specifically calls out for Rittenhouse rye, and I do not have that at the moment. I have a 
I have noble oak, double oak rye. But uh, sugared rye blended sour is two ounces of sugared rye, which is 75% rye by weight and 25% powdered sugar by weight. Agitated mm. until it all incorporates. Half an ounce of lemon juice, a quarter ounce of orange juice, four drops of saline solution at 20%, also by weight, so 20% salt, 80% water. And then four ounces of ice, all blended and poured into, I poured it into a double rocks glass and garnished it with a lemon wheel. And it is absolutely wonderful. It is so fucking good. And I think I'm probably going to start making sours this way. Instead of using simple syrup, this seems to create a better blend of of booze to tart with that mm. sweetness without without diluting the boozy. Yeah, that's the big thing that I was thinking about when you were running through that. I was like, but then you add the the four ounces of ice. So that's basically, I mean, that's technically more dilution. It is. I think it's intended to be served immediately and consumed immediately. Sure. But now, since we've been recording for 40 minutes with our devil's cut, which you can listen to if you join us at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. So now it's a little bit more melty, but immediately it's it's really punchy, really, really good. So I'm going to explore that a yep. little bit more. He also has in that same section a blended margarita recipe which calls for more triple sec or more Cointreau than tequila, which seems odd, but I'm intrigued by it. I think it's mostly using it for the sugar content. Hmm. But Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, back half beer. I have, and I am doing a back half beer, even though it's nine in the fucking morning. Redemption from Lua Brewing out of Des Moines, Iowa, which I went to this past week. Because I got a new job near Des Moines. It's working remote, but I had to travel down there. So stopped in another brewery on my way home and picked up this four-pack. It is a collaboration with Field Day Brewing. I don't know anything from them, but Redemption is a double dry hop, double hazy IPA with Ruwaka, Mateka, Simcoe, and Mosaic Cryo hops. But very okay. clearly a Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, uh, definitely a play on Red Dead Redemption. Totally leaning into it. Love art. that look. Yep. <clears throat> so really happy with it. Good stuff. Cool. What about you, Crossland? I am having what I'm calling morning time madness. And I'm only calling it that because I actually messed it up once and then had to remake it in our like half hour window because i'm taking care of the dogs over at my parents place so like i had to run back and forth to you know get here on time and i was like okay i know exactly what i'm gonna make and then in the middle of brewing my pour over coffee i decided what if i also filtered the vodka through that i'm gonna put in this and so i had hot water and cold vodka going through and wow did that shock the beans in the worst kind of way it ruined the expression mm. of the coffee and just totally washed it all out and tasted disgusting bad idea don't do it do not recommend 0 out of 10 all um, right so don't do that so morning time madness was me real quickly having to brew another <laughs> pour over coffee which takes like 5 minutes so basically what I did, 16 ounces of pour over coffee, two and a half ounces of grind, the coffee espresso liqueur that I also had a shot of in the devil's cut, and then an ounce of vodka just to give it a little bit of bite. It's what's really great about this is that basically it's leaning into the sweet profile. 
I'm using very traditionally citrusy beans with like some blueberry notes almost. So like you get it. It sounds crazy like this. You're like, oh, it's like any coffee drink that you might get at a brunch place. But it's like using good beans to do something like this is a dumb, b expensive, c delicious. Like this is really tasty. Good. Beans are from Wilder Roasters out of Boise, sent to me from Bree, our friend PB Doodles. So, oh, nice. That's a gift for helping her set up the show. Her show. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very good, very tasty. Thank you to Bree and Wilder for your incredible stuff. But yeah, really good single origin blueberry coffee. Highly recommend you guys check them out if you haven't already. Wonderful. Any anything cool. back half? Nope. Water. All right. Um, it's sixteen ounces. Like it's a it's a yeah. substantial amount of coffee, and it's three and a half ounces of booze. So I was like, nah, not not for this morning. Uh, yeah, yeah, so. maybe that's a good idea. Yeah, I have to like I have to go do things after this. I have to you know, I've I've activities that I must attend to when we're done. Shout out, shout out by the way to Adam, our good friend, another mm-hmm. castle on Twitch doing the charity stream this weekend we yes, were yeah, a part of it party. yesterday and are you joining anything today i'm not sure oh halo at the end of the day i'm halo. not doing halo no okay. unfortunately yeah. i'm going to try you should be i don't know if i good. own it on steam actually well you can fix that with money with dollars i can fix that with dollars yeah. Good point. Yeah, no, we we did last night. I don't know if you watched that segment. I was. Yeah, uh, I was there. Yeah, oh, man. I was I was just the smallest bit and I'm going to besmirch Adam's good name now. <laughs> there were two errors on the World of Warcraft question and the fact that I didn't get a point for the big error. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll fight. I'll fight to the end of the earth. Yeah, it's all good though. No. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was fun to watch. It was it was great. I had a great time. I definitely want to do it again. I have the I'm actually board game, so I'm very excited to do this with other people in addition. So I'll you have to uh, come visit. Maybe. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to come visit. Maybe yeah. maybe soon. Now that I've got this remote job, I can kind of swing things a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. So, what were you gonna say? Is that something that can be easily converted into something online? Maybe. Maybe. Don't know. We'll think about that later. But yeah, I would definitely be interested. It'll be fun. Cool. All right. Well, with that, before we talk about the books and go into our breakdown and talk about the chapters this week, what do you think of this reading overall this week, this quarter of the book that we read? I, especially towards the back half of it, fell in love with this. Mm-hmm. This was one of my favorite sections of the last couple of books, I think. I really, really liked it, especially getting into the combat. I'll probably gush over that a little bit when we get there <laughs> in the notes. But it was it was fast paced. It was well balanced and well described and just felt good to me. Yeah, I I think I can wholeheartedly agree. I think that there are tons of great character moments. There's a lot of like really fun unpacking of what the history of era one means to era two and like the involvement therein we've kind of had it like i think in previous books it's been more of a 
an Easter egg kind of a thing or almost played for jokes in different times and moments or like kind of point nod, go like, haha, you know, like in a Marvel movie where you see something that you might recognize that no one else knows because they haven't read the comics or, you know, there's something small like that. It, it always felt like it was nods, but now it feels like we're actually talking about the implications of the past in a big way. Right. In this book. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's a ton of fun. And then on top of that, you have all kinds of mysteries right at the end of this section. So, yeah, there were a couple of other places. If we would have had another week, I would have broken this out and part of the next section out and then kind of combined because I'd love to talk about what happens immediately next. But we only had four weeks to do this. So, yeah, yeah symptom of the time crunch of of going into this to get to lost metal on time right which right we'll be getting in person yeah in person for that signed 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 which is crazy and yeah because pj got one of the drawing signing wins so we're gonna go get book signed by brandon neat yeah so that's also very fun very pumped yeah, that'll be that'll be great. I need I need yeah. to figure out how to get those home to me. I think I'm going to right. mail them, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that'll be difficult. That might not sure. might not be a problem if that signing's on Monday, because mm-hmm. we just mail them Monday night, Tuesday morning, something like that. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that could totally work. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. With that, let's get into our breakdown here. Very excited to talk about this week's chapters. So with that, we start with chapter 13. We open this chapter with Wax approaching Devlin under the statue of Mother Terrace, the mother of Terrace Tindwill, and next to some particularly ravenous octopus. And this conversation is truly fascinating. I think it's honestly one of Brandon's best from an informant. And it really feels like there is this serious power imbalance and this like flirtatiousness that I really, really, really enjoy in this in this context um you know and it, it's just great it's it's uh, it shows growth in this area being able to get our intrigue and mystery in a way that isn't just mythology which i think he's previously really played into more and more beyond that he points to two different things one of which we'll get to later in this episode of course that of the city to the northeast and the project around it what do you think those octopuses are crazy man <laughs> They got those pointy beaks. <laughs> they got those pointy beaks. I felt like there was a comment here about Tindwell mm-hmm. that felt off, and I can't remember exactly what was said. Something... In the darkness. I also had that. Died in the darkness or something yeah, like that. Or died facing facing off against the deepness. Was that it? It's the darkness. I... It's not the deepness specifically, but it is the okay. darkness. Okay. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah, it, yeah. like there's... If there's anything that's pointing to Harmony actively changing the past or changing the the literature to misrepresent the past, it's this as a means of like bolstering Tindwell's significance, I guess. Like she's a significant figure of Era One, but like this is she's held in much more reverence than I think she would have otherwise. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think if anyone else wrote the history books, it would be a little bit different. I don't think that she would get quite the attention. But again, history is written by the victors, of course. And that's something to some degree that we're going to be talking about. I mean, especially when we get into Milan and kind of the conversation with Marisi later. Um, but yeah, that that one in particular, that section I actually marked off here. The man was 
watching the nearby fish tank, which stood beneath a depiction of Tindwell, the mother of Terrace, perched on the walls during her last stand against the darkness. And it's like, she is actively fighting against, you know, the forces that are there to take out Elendel, but it's not in the same context because it is ultimately that Kolos force and the force of the two armies that were standing outside of the walls and everything else. So it's, it's a very different kind of death and moment. How did she actually die again? During the siege of Elendel or not Elendel of, does she die off page off page? Yep. Okay. Couldn't remember. Yeah. Doxon, we, we get a perspective of when he dies and we kind of know that that's when some of the deaths happen. And then we, we find Tindwill later. Right. So. But she's in her study. Like she's not perched on a wall or anything. Right? This is over top of a... This is in, like... This is not in a study. This is in, like, a gathering room or a social space. Because there's also, like, a fish tank and stuff like that. We don't get into the study until much later. No, no, no. Tindwell was in her study, I thought, when Sazed finds her. I don't... No, I don't think so. Okay. She was She was fighting. She was out fighting. Okay my knowledge as i recall but yeah and i mean it is it is definitely harmony leaning in on the fact that you know he's he was with her dating her seeing her you know whichever context it's it's kind of put into in the story but it's still it's still stretching the truth especially when so many other things have been fairly evident and truthful this one is like harmony you're playing at a game a little bit here you're you're lending importance to some things and not others we're right. showing bias and but we've never known him to not be biased you know it's fair it's not against character necessarily right it feels like he should be an unbiased god but that's never actually been his 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 trait yeah True. it just feels like it is you know like it, it it always surprises me when i think about it it really is. It, it feels yeah. wrong to some degree. Like, and I'm not saying it's actually wrong, but it feels weird considering all of the context around, you know, godhood and godliness and everything else. Like, it's just like, oh, you mm-hmm. were just a man, though, that was elevated to godhood. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. There's more there for sure. But what, what do you make of, outside of that, thinking about Devlin and kind of the, the flirtatiousness of this conversation... He points to the city in the northeast as well as the, what is it, the the murder that was setting something else up? Two different moments and events. What, what was the murder? It was it was a small thing. They don't really talk about it too much, but someone was killed somewhere. Yeah, that's and that's the Wild West for you, you know? Mm-hmm. I guess yeah, but it's more of a targeted. saloons and such. It was more targeted than that, which is why it's worth mentioning. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I mean, it's exciting. It's enticing. We obviously know... Mm-hmm a lot about Delvin going forward, but to see it get teased here, I remember being really, ooh, what's that? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah, this is the, fun, funny enough, funnily enough, this is almost the most mysterious and flirtatious that anything we've read of Brandon's has been thus far in a, in an almost direct context because it's about clues and secrecy. And so there is this like degree of unearthing it and flirtatious, of course, being used a little bit lightly, but you know, it is, does have that air of mystery that often his male and female characters just don't quite hit all the time or like he doesn't seek to hit that necessarily. So I don't know. Yeah. 
It reminds yeah, me a little bit of Apollonius and Darrow. That's all I'll say. There's a uh, lot of like, there are a lot of reminders of Red Rising <laughs> in this section. Specifically, yeah, I think more and more this section really grows in a big way. But yes, I I do agree with you. I mean, uh, even some of the names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. Actually, <laughs> I I did want to talk about this, but I didn't put it in the notes. Kelsina is an interesting name because it is Kelsier, but it is a female version of Kelsier. Very clearly, as I started to think about it, it's like Christina. Christopher is a, is a derivation of Christ and some other names down the line. And like there are many steps to get there. So it's not foolproof and it's split between regions anyway. But in the same kind of way, Kelisina is very clearly like the downstream effect of like, what if you take Kelsier's name, make it female and like add the 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 pre- suffixes to the name? Yeah. yeah. Move it around a little bit internally, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, but. Very, you 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 knew what I was talking about when I said similar to Red Rising. Oh yeah, Rising I know name. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I just don't want to spoil anyone. Right. No. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Which is why I pointed just to those characters, and like yep. I think that that's enough of a point if you know. Yep. Without if you know, it. you know. Right. There are there there are characters with names within the Red True. Rising universe. True. Okay, moving on here. He also brings up something we started the conversation around a little bit in the last book and really heavily in the last week. The real group to be afraid of here isn't necessarily the set, but those building and perpetuating perpetuating this oligarchical society. And man, it's hard now to, to agree with this politically savvy scoundrel that we're talking to in Devlin here. And kind of, I mean, not the set at large. You don't agree with the set necessarily because they're trying to overthrow things in the wrong direction. But you can see where... The people are right to be mad, and the potential for civil war has come to a boil. Yeah, I hadn't quite considered civil war yet, based on what we'd been exposed to, you know? But looking back on it, yeah, there's obviously a lot of unrest in the outer cities, and... Even in Arendelle, I mean, with the workers, like... True. I mean, that's true, too. But the workers versus that, I feel like, has less of an actual risk of civil war. You know, like civil war. to Yeah, me yeah, it's is you're, is you're grander right. It's than still that. it's still due to those same pressures, though. It's due right. to the same governmental structure. So like the, the issues have the same root. Yep. yep, exactly. But yeah, all, all of it seems pretty in line with some of the stuff we talked about last week kind of political machinations and mm-hmm. large large pieces being moved around yeah in in big ways yep yeah it's excellent it's really well done really well crafted inside of this to give us that full perspective and it does again i think one of the great things about this series is that each book gets better but it also informs the other books so well, and it really lends like this strong through line of like, oh, I wasn't quite paying attention to that. Oh, I wasn't quite looking at that close enough and scrutinizing that small detail. There's a good amount of that, I think. Yeah. So we then finally meet the purveyor of this fine party, the fierce lady Kelisina Shores. After a flirtatious exchange again, Brandon was clearly on one when he was writing this, she goes pale when Wax shows her the coin. Why do you think she's freaking out about this coin? I mean, we kind of get an answer to this at the end, right? 
not even at the end, like later this chapter or next chapter. Mm-hmm. Just that it it is an artifact of Delvin and their their explorations of is it north? I think it's north. Uh Devlin and Northeast? Yeah. So so we get the answer that like him knowing about the coin is perceived as proof that he knows about all of the goings on up there. I do feel like there's more to it though. Like I can't I can't recall exactly what I initially thought of this without knowledge going forward. Cause it's a pretty quick turnaround between learning about this and having that conversation with Edwarn, right? Mm-hmm. The the biggest throw I think here from this this section is to think about Hoyd's relationship to giving the coin in the first place, right? Like why why did Hoyd, where's that connection? You know, where's that outlay? I mean, at this point, he he feels like almost an agent of chaos. Yeah. Um, but in our perspective, acting as an agent of good, you know, mm-hmm. like it's throwing wrenches in plans and that's all it's doing. But from our perspective, it's only benefiting our heroes. So it's mm-hmm. hard to know whether or not he's on our side or against the set or against whatever is going on. Or if he's just trying to sow chaos. Yeah, fair point. Okay. So we, of course, have this like freak out. Kelisina leaves. And as you mentioned earlier, she goes off and ends up confronting Suit, which we'll talk about, I think, in the next chapter or the chapter following. Because there's there's some blurred lines here that happens between now and 16. But Wax returns to Steris to explain his precarious position. And after a brief conversation about the best way to get out of the room and get out of this party, potentially... Saris gives herself some epicac and proceeds to vomit all over the table to get them out of the situation. Atta babe. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, that whole thing's only intensified by the fact that all she's had to consume is that yellow soda. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just this bile looking. And some wine, but you know, that's oh, was not there wine too? Okay. I, I, yeah. I forgot still, about the wine part. I mean, still I, I don't know if you've ever vomited wine but i have vomited wine mm-hmm. <laughs> it is purple and that is gross <laughs> it's really gross yeah <laughs> but yeah well well prepared well done mm-hmm. steris is a i don't know she's a wild card but in the most weirdly prepared way you know yeah, it, well, it's interesting because it was preparation for being poisoned, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, well, naturally, like, you that's that's totally what you use Epicac for to begin with is more often than not clearing out some kind of chemical there or something in your stomach that's disagreeing, you know, if, whatever. If you're a dog, it's hydrogen peroxide. So I'm glad she mm-hmm. had people stuff instead of dog stuff. Or chondra stuff. Or chondra stuff. That just it's makes you go, dogs? go floopy, floopy. Or her dogs? Do you think they maintain different internal organs? Like, do they maintain chondra organs when they're different? Oh, we kind of we kind of get some of that later. So I think that I think that a we can definitely talk about that later. But yeah, I think that they maintain some chondra organs that are outside of the necessary apparatuses for imitation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
We move back to our amateur grave robbers, and Marisi confronts a statue of the Ascendant Warrior, and it's just this sort of pure moment of dramatic irony that really highlights the myth that's in the back of the story, right? Because Marisi literally asks questions like, you know, did she ever question herself? Yeah, she questioned herself a lot. She she had a lot of insecurities. Matter of fact, Vin is riddled with anxiety about different things and moments, and yet there's this portrayal in front of her that is just this this truly gargantuan thing to live up to but she had just as many if not more faults than marisi did and you know it's it's so interesting to see the way that myth is really talked about and i'm really shocked that harmony didn't make sure to humanize her in any way in in the texts to really kind of give this sense of like just being a normal person because that feels like i mean being exceptional of course but really having the same problems as a normal person to try to downplay that and it gets back to this whole question that we're interrogating this week a little bit which is these myths are actually kind of dangerous and haven't been good necessarily holistically perfectly good and have caused some of the problems that we're facing today yeah it's coming off of the back of the conversation about tindwell i feel like i'm going to cross against myself a little bit here but i wonder how much of this is actually due to says influence and the text that he left versus what's picked and chosen and what's perpetuated by the people you know Mm -hmm. it it feels almost like all of the different sects of christianity kind of focusing on different things and letting other things fall to the wayside despite what the actual original text says so i'm i'm curious i'd like to read the text (laughs) (laughs) and i know that's probably a problem but i'd really like to because I'm, i'm sure there are differences between like what is commonly known and commonly taught versus what's actually there and i i'd like to believe that sazed slash harmony didn't intentionally leave anything out humanizing her but her human parts aren't that interesting it's her when she becomes exceptional is what inspires hope greatness you know and yeah i i would argue that that's the wrong way to look at it that finding exceptionality in the mundane is important but just knowing how myths and legends are are perpetuated that's kind of how it goes you know yeah i you know i'm to- i'm definitely with you i think that you're 100 percent correct especially as thinking about this the part of this is is that we do get to read some of the words of founding it turns out that that's the epigraph of you know book three of hero of ages right are those words some of the words of founding probably the intro is the way that it's kind of pitched right but that doesn't obviously give us all of the context. We've gotten little bits and pieces of other context here and there, but not not a full, you know, book or anything like that. And I do I do tend to agree with you that I think that I believe that Sazed has good intent and when Sazed pick up picked up the powers, he didn't intend to do anything. But sometimes it's not about intention, it's about the consequence of not doing something or of act, or of forgetting to do something, right? And so I, I think that this is more that than it is him him choosing to leave it out, right? This is more out of sight, out of mind kind of a problem. Yeah. 
you know, you build and, your perfect sim house that you're taking care of as a god uh, over the top of your sims or your sim city or whatever, and then you forget to put in water treatment, and so everyone dies of disease because you were thinking about the schools and not the water treatment plant. That's really what this feels like. I was just going to bring up, like, this feels like a a simulation that he's playing or... I mean, I, I hate to bring up the stereotypical kind of parallel to it, but it feels like a a person looking at an anthill, you know? Like th- there are just things that are going to go just disregarded or forgotten, so. Yeah, right, exactly. It's, you know, says it is playing a 4X game and he's not sure what policies to choose. <laughs> 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 and he's got two different powers fighting inside of him for, uh, you know, control. All right. So the scene in this chapter ends with gunshots fired and falling into the pair of our heroes, Marcy and Wayne in this moment, falling into a grave, which is just a great moment to like cut out on a chapter on. It's it's strong. In a different life, as we've been pitching here, this would have ended a week because it would have been a great spot to end. It would probably would have ended last week, but I would have split up the book very differently. Oh, man, there there are so many different good ending points, you know? Well, that's why this um, book is great is because every almost every chapter ends with a glorious cliffhanger. Yeah, I think there's a better one in this section, but yeah, I falling into the grave is, is the <laughs> kind of funny. It's perfect bunker yes. that they've just dug themselves it, it is really great, especially as the other guy gets shot to pieces that they had just hired and who had also tipped off everyone else. But that's getting a little bit in chapter 14. So let's let's hop over to that chapter for this. We have this scene here that we, we stumble back into where they're inside of the speed bubble on top of the casket. And we're kind of dealing with the scene in the moments with grave robbers. I think it's really smart of Brandon to not give us too much here to like kind of cut away from the action a little bit and just make it kind of resolve itself for the most part after they get out of the immediate, you know, struggle and strife of the scene. What do you make of our cemetery violence? I'm going to disagree with you a little bit in that it felt so not augmented, but obfuscated Mm. that I, I, I couldn't get a good read on what was actually going on. And I know they're, they're kind of stuck in a bunker just hearing gunshots in the distance, but I feel like it would have benefited to hear some chatter, some shouts, some some something more than just the actual gunshot going on. It just it fell a little flat for me. That's fair. I I think that that's very reasonable. As as mentioned, I I do think that this is a like a very short chapter that is kind of light on a lot of different things, but it has some good moments inside of it. But this is one of those where it's like doesn't make sense to like spend more time to flesh it out. This is a good way of resolving that character of the grave robber without really needing to deal with him in another way because he is, you know, scum and bad. So kind of makes sense to, you know, have him be dispatched when he was the one who sent off the kid to turn him in in the first place. So there is this sort of duplicity that we get where this is the first instance of the set really coming out in force on this side of the equation. Previously, you know, we've got Steris and wax on doing their thing and now on this side we we see the set show up so yeah we also don't get any actual interaction with the champ no yeah he basically he's there there they say oh he betrayed us and then he gets blown to shit by dynamite well he got shot a bunch of oh was he was he dead he he died at the end of chapter 13 beginning in chapter 14 
Okay. So like he he was shot to shit, and then the dynamite. Which I have I have things on dynamite, and questions on it from from a speed bubble perspective. But I think that is probably <laughs> a really strange interaction that even even in researching probably didn't come up. Should we just jump into that? I, I know that's yeah. Skipping. Do it. Do it. Fire away. So we know that through speed bubbles, things get red or blue shifted, right? Kind of. There's kind. there's a little bit last week that posits why isn't it a red shift? Why doesn't speed bubbles red shift? That that mysterious character at the dance posits. Oh right. Okay. So, but but our assumption is that it works very similar to red blue shift. Right. Similar, so, not necessarily identical. Based on the fact that objects deflect means that there is a physical interaction with the time around it and, yep. and how things interact. So presumably, if something is going at something very slowly, and then it hits a barrier, and half of it's going really quickly, and half of it's going really slowly, there'd be internal tension. Mm-hmm. There'd be a, a, effectively a shockwave mm-hmm. going through that object. Yeah? Can that be mm-hmm. reasonable? Very reasonable. That's how dynamite works. Mm-hmm. Dynamite is reactive to shock. Nitroglycer- nitroglycerin specifically is reactive to shock. So dynamite has a bunch of nitroglycerin and a blasting cap. So the, the blasting cap is what actually produces a shock wave, and that shock wave triggers a chain reaction of nitroglycerin. So mm-hmm. hypothetically, upon hitting a speed bubble, there'd be enough of a shock that would just detonate the nitroglycerin and the, the dynamite without actually hitting the end of the fuse. Yes, I totally agree. This is something that's played for jokes in a ton of Western movies, if people have seen any number of them. But like the loose bottles of like nitroglycerin that are shaking around in a cart and they're making those like mm-hmm. rattling noises. That's why it's so scary to be in one of those carts with them and they're like loosely shaking because if they shake too much, they'll blow. Like if they collide too quickly, they'll explode. Mm-hmm. And so to that same degree, you know, it's it. I totally agree with you. This is an interesting interaction that makes me go, all right. So now we're going to interrogate the red. We have to interrogate the red shift blue to. shift in order to make it make sense. The other part of the red shift blue shift problem, though, is that they can see in and out of the bubbles within reason, which shouldn't happen the way that it is portrayed necessarily. If it were fully following red shift blue shift logic, yeah, because light particles would be diffracting and would smear a lot more than they do. That's that's true. That's that's also something I can forgive well, for sure. Yeah. But when you're interacting with physical objects, that's where you have to you have to interrogate it a little bit more, bringing in the redshift blue shift terms. Yep. Just as an addendum, I'm sure we brought it up before. I feel like we have, or maybe I've just talked to you about it before. But that is why exploring abandoned mines is really dangerous because over time, nitroglycerin inside of dynamite crystallizes and becomes very, very reactive to shock. So just picking up a really, really old, like 100-year-old stick of dynamite could be enough to detonate it. It doesn't get less explosive. It just gets more unstable. reactive. Unstable, yeah, exactly. Reactive. Yeah, reactive is better. You're right. 
That's great. I'm totally putting that in as a story moment. I've cataloged that in the back of my head. I'm now thinking about a mine in my story, and there will be some old dynamite in there. We're done. It's great. Perfect. Great. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. And the thank you in the back, there will be a little spot for PJ. Thank you for the dynamite fact. Yep. All right. Sweet. So we kind of talked about the top and the bottom of this then in that way. So we have to get to the middle, right? Which is with Cirrus and Wax. And right. really... I love this moment that happens in their exchange. There's not there's not a whole lot that actually happens in the scene, but it just goes to show again, Sarah's leveled of preparedness. And there's a moment of modesty where she's got this gun strapped to her leg and like two pairs of pants shorts over top over top of this big dress that would have been covering the whole thing, as well as seven rolls of tape keeping it on. (laughs) According to Wax's perspective, I think, is he's like it had to be it seems hyperbolic and we can talk about that for sure. But like. This is such a great comedic moment, a great personal moment for the two of them. And it it really binds us in this moment and in the scene, again, reaffirming that relationship that they have. Yeah. This tape. That was a funny joke. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to think about it. There you go. So seven rolls of tape, huh? We talked about this off air. You and I, you <laughs> and did, I did. We, did. Yeah. We, yeah. we had a phone call and we talked about this a little bit. It's either hyperbolic. It's seven wraps like seven wrapped around seven times they're smaller wrap like smaller rolls of tape than what we're used to i don't know or or it's like weaker the tape itself is weaker and there's like seven just really thin like like medical tape or like medical wrap you know i I wasn't even gonna say that something even flimsier than that like uh, like really brittle scotch tape that would need a ton in order to hold something on but there's a whole lot of steris's inner workings that comes through here like the two different pairs of shorts not to conceal the gun to conceal herself from wax given this situation coming to be like just it's two pairs of shorts for modesty mm-hmm. in an emergency situation, which is, I mean, it's fair. It is what it is, but it's kind of funny. And Yeah, and I, I have no ridiculous. issue with it or anything like that, but it's, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It is kind of ridiculous. It is very funny, but it, it plays into this character that we've, it, it was in the last book and in the first book, even it was this sort of thing where it was like, she's very on the nose on these different notes. And now it's, now it's to the point that we can go like, this is who she is and she just works and operates this way. And that's awesome. But you have to understand that that's how she operates. And that's also what wax is coming around to is kind of understanding that in a more full way as he actually tries to approach this as a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it characterizes her. Excellent. It does. It, it, it fits perfectly. Where, where do you stand at the moment on the amount of tape applied here? (laughs) I'm just going to try to get your read your temperature on this one. Do you think it's hyperbole? So, Do you think it's a different type of tape? Do you think it's I seven lean wraps? into hyperbole? I okay. think that so I lean into hyperbole, but I still believe that she did wrap a lot of tape. And so I want to say that either the rolls are small that wax is imagining and that is in this world, right? I think that's my most logical train of thought. It's hyperbole and the rolls are small and short. It's not like I they're buying industrial packing tape 12 rolls at a time from duct (laughs) or whatever duct tape you know like there's no way that they're doing that so right yeah i I think it's i think it's something that's just there's so much that applies to the term tape 
that yeah. it's hard to really get a read on it. But I, I mm-hmm. think I'm with you on the hyperbole. It's pretty funny, though. I, it is I funny. I do enjoy it. It's great. Yeah. I okay, also cool. like imagining I, her trying to walk around with the shotgun strapped to her leg, like she mentions. Well, I think that's why she doesn't dance, right? Like, if you look at the other scene, that's why she, like, kind of says ah. no to dancing, is because she's also, she's strapped, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or that's taped. Like, stra- tape, something like that. She, you know. She's taped. She's taped. She's taped up. Cool. All right. I think that's pretty much everything in this chapter that, I want to talk about. Is there anything else to you in this chapter? Kind of Luffy missing? No, I think that's pretty much everything that happens in this chapter. Probably didn't need to be its own chapter. I agree. This is, (laughs) this is, this is, I don't, I don't think it should be cut at all, but I think 14 and 15 could reasonably be combined reasonably, but yeah, I understand. All right. So we move into chapter 15 and we cut to Templeton Fig. And this is a very interesting perspective that we kind of move to. He praises Trell. We have the champ's body. Marsh shows up in the window and calls him, you know, and it's it's this really kind of like horror movie moment where he's kind of walking through and calls him his. And this is just such a fun moment that turns on its head when we switch out of his position and into the other one. After the body's dropped in the room as well, the champ's body, of course. And this entirely being a ruse on Wayne's part is so funny. It's so perfect. Yeah. It's it's I, also I unexpected because, and I, I'm pulling this straight from the audiobook being Michael Kramer's performance, which is amazing and well mm-hmm. done as always. But it is Marsh's voice that's coming out of Wayne. And as far as we know, Wayne hasn't met Marsh, yes? Yeah, no, he hasn't. He confirms that he hasn't. But Maris he has, which makes for a very interesting exchange later. Right. So so we have a from from the audiobook's perspective, a perfect uh, interpretation of Marsh's voice. I to be perfectly frank, I believed it was Marsh, my first read through of it because my first read read through was audiobook this time because I was driving and it it fooled me initially because right before this we get them saying that they have one more stop to make after looking through the the ledger that they find oh there there is in the previous section there is the the funny moment of Wayne searching through the desk and finally finding something and it's the booze stash he's like oh no I found the thing you're looking for a while ago that was easy to find yeah yeah for um, so that's that's noteworthy but yeah it, it totally threw me off and i believed that they had gone and found marsh and and recruited him and that, is, that falls apart quickly but like that that initial read through listen through was surprising for me. it's a great sleight of hand i i really Again, like you were saying, with audiobook, 100% tricked. I was fooled. I had totally 100% fallen for the bit, and I had forgotten the bit because it is so small that, like, I was like, what? what is this? Marsh? Marsh wasn't here. And then, like, my brain clicked into place. I was like, oh, yeah, I was Wayne. Okay, all right. Got it, got it, got it. Because I also was like, did I forget that Marsh is involved? <laughs> yeah. So, well done. I mean, multiple... I've I've read this a couple of times, and so being fooled by audiobook was just it was a delight, and I and the part works perfectly. It, it 
it really kind of as they begin to explore this room afterwards, it puts Dulcing on the map. They kind of know where to go going forward. So it's it's just a wonderful cut to POV for for a great gag, and then cutting back to the the heroes of the story having kind of intimidated someone into giving them more information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so good, cool, tricky All shit. Right. It's it's pretty it's pretty goofy. It's pretty great. I really I really enjoyed it, especially with the mask. Like the specifics of like, oh yeah, I threw on one of those masks. It was just great. So with that, we move to Wax scouting out Lady Kelsina's place. Edward talking with Kelsina and saying that he knows about the coins, pointing directly to Hoyd tipping him off, as well as what do these coins kind of hold in the grander perspective of the universe. Not only that, but we also learned that Kelsina. And as thus the set were directly involved in what happened to Relure. So we really kind of get the firm grounding here that it wasn't something mysterious. It wasn't these creatures even that have been highlighted in these horrific drawings. It was the set that did this to Relure and kind of set all these pieces into place. What's what's about to happen? Yeah, pieces into places, right? Like these, this puzzle is all clicking together. It's a whole lot of just, I mean tangential information that we have kind of assumed to be related but to get confirmation that it's all working together is i mean i'm one to constantly think about things and theorize things and be wrong more often than not so to get some confirmation is really good for me yeah i it's it's great it clears up a little those like pieces of the mystery and it adds a little bit of context to different moments it does for me, it raises a couple of questions about truly the level of technology that the set have and have access to and why. Because it does, it firmly puts a line in the sand where they know and have access to so much more than anyone else publicly has. We've seen technology accelerate greatly since starting the series. But this is such a stretch, a video call, basically, or a radio call. Um, yeah, he, he refers, Wax refers to it as a telegram for voices. Yeah, so it's a, it's a phone call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. speakerphone conference call if you will but, <laughs> um, not quite zoom but we're close <laughs> next book we'll have zoom i'm surprised that he didn't comment on his uncle sounding far away or fuzzy in any way or distorted so he either that kind means... of does when he's in the other room but like just barely like it's does not he? it's not that highlighted yeah it's it's okay. kind of I don't think he says underwater, but he sounds as like distant or something like that. Okay, I missed that. I missed that yeah, part. It's it's a small, it's like one line. So I was hoping that they had better communication, audio fidelity what? equipment. There's than- there's a question of like, is this wireless technology? Like, how are you actually making the phone work? Because phone lines were a big thing back then. So are you running a phone line to this place to the next place? I think like, it has to be because be- she he takes it with him, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any yeah. wires connecting. Yeah, so it's gonna be. I just you're telling me cell phones. It's it's a cell phone or a satellite phone. You know. Yeah, I don't know. I just imagine. So it initially he immediately doesn't make any sort of reaction mm-hmm. to the fact that it's not actually like there's just a silver box there. But I like mm-hmm. to imagine that his uncle, but like he feels like his uncle became a silver box. He's like what. <laughs> What did you do to my uncle? <laughs> Where? What happened to him? Where's his body? <laughs> Turned him into a box. 
Oh no. <laughs> this great tragedy in, in that moment. Like I wanted to kill him. You turned him into a box. <laughs> uh, that's pretty great. You're not wrong though. He does kind of have that sort of, there is like a, a big question mark when he actually charges into the room in the, in the next chapter or rather at the end of this chapter. And uh, yeah, that's just, it's such a good moment. I mean, we Any, do anything have, else? we do have the previous comment from Harmony talking about being disappointed that they hadn't discovered the radio yet. Mm-hmm. So this is clearly a step beyond radio. This is two-way communication and wireless at that, as you mentioned. Right. The thing to add there, though, is that we know that anyone, seemingly, not anyone, but some people that are within Trell's control are outside of his reach, if it is Trell to begin with. You know, like there's there's a lot of questions there. So could Harmony be occluded from seeing this or like knowing about well, this because of other reasons? I don't think that's the case. This feels sure. more like Harmony was disappointed with the society at large. Because it seemed like he knew that there were other societies on the planet that had evolved to that technological point. The note on movies. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep, yep, exactly. So it's less so that he doesn't realize that they exist on this world and more so that he feels like it could have been discovered organically by the people by now if he hadn't coddled them. Well, that gets back to the the thing that we've been talking about a little bit this week, which is the oligarchical problem in society, in this society, right? Where like wealth controls engineering and everything else. I mean, you even think back to the last book and the the woman whose father invented the light bulb and electricity or whatever it was exactly. I can't remember precisely which of those two it was, you know, and didn't get the credit for it and was was taken by the other professor that Wayne was impersonating at the time. And I think that it just shows that truly technology is locked behind wealth in such a massive way during this time frame and that's true of the industrial revolution at large like you couldn't get a phone for cheap i mean it's that wasn't a thing until you know or tvs even when they eventually came out you couldn't get those until much 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 later for reasonable prices so yeah for yeah, consumer grade prices yeah yeah cool anything else on this chapter mm, i think that covers most of what happens this this chapter Right. Because we don't yeah, actually I, get I think the so conversation too. like this bleeds. This is the end of the chapter. Yeah. 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 This is like wax steps into the room. We realize that it's the box. We know that Kelsey is in the room. You know, yeah. actually, I, I guess we don't technically know that it's the box. We get that at the beginning of 16. It all bleeds together, though. This again, this chapter bleeds in and I can see why you would split this here. Because it's wax stepping into the room, but. 16 has like the denouement of the part too so it's it's also responsible for setting up the final part of the book right so we go into chapter 16 we have a quick conversation when the situation changes edwarn through the little box signals the brutish maid to kill kelisina preventing the information from leaking about the attempted murder of relure and the conspiracy of the set at large this is such a crazy moment because there is this kind of confrontation that happens between Kelisina and Wax, and then it all goes south so quickly in a way that you didn't expect. Like, you think the maid would have gone for Wax, but actually the setup is to frame him immediately. Yeah, it's... I mean, it makes me wonder how many people are actually in on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's all it's all production. It's all play. So, like, are all the people that 
this maid is screaming to also in on it and know that this is something that'll happen. But hey, it happened. So now we can report to any authorities. Yeah, the maid went screaming that wax. I don't know. It it's well played. It's well choreographed and coordinated, and really puts wax in a peculiar situation. It does. Precarious. It's yeah. It it's great though. I I really love the way that this it flavors the organization as such where they want to defame Wax and defaming Wax is more important than his his death in some ways would make him a martyr of a lawman and this instead paints it as it's necessary to put this man down several pegs before killing him. And I'm curious if it's even that. Is it almost pressure of join or die? Could in be. a way, like could it could it yeah. be a a a pressure point for trying to flip him? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think there's there's that as well because it's not. Edward has made it very clear that he doesn't necessarily want to kill Wax, even though he thinks that it should be done in different moments. But, you know, that's that's how it goes. So, yeah. After a brief cat and mouse game that happens inside the room, Milan dispatches the terrorist woman who murdered Kelisina and makes her way over to Wax. But the dispatching is so fucking metal man pulling off her arm like ripping off the arm out of the socket to reveal a blade is very very cool very epic a little bit edge lordy but i kind of like it. <laughs> mall ninja you know? shit it's definitely some mall ninja shit have you watched <laughs> in sleeping city 2 yet no oh my god literally one of the characters one of the pcs has a new character in season two and it is a mall emo and it is so good <laughs> <laughs> must watch uh um, must watch <laughs> okay good it's exactly who, who, what you'd expect who has that huh? or who has that murph murph has <laughs> yeah murph trades out cug awesome. um so good so good so okay. good Anyway, Wax then shoots the four remaining men in the room, and we find a strange gold metal bracelet falling out of Kelsina's pocket, heavily invested with healing capabilities because Wax finds that he can't really push against it that well or that strongly. They launch into, or sorry, we then return to Steris. This is kind of a lot of things that happen in this chapter, but they all kind of connect in moments and beats. So we then return to Steris and begin to make our way out of this house party. They launch into the night sky, and we get a term for what this is on the other side of the mist at night, the Ascendance Field where she could play. She, of course, being Vin. It's just beautiful as described. And to kiss, to kiss in disguise. Kiss. Very Aladdin almost to me, like <laughs> on, yeah. on the carpet. Like that's that was my first gut instinct was like, yep. all right, this, <laughs> this is Jasmine all, and Aladdin. All the kisses. Yeah. Z- the kisses. All so cute. But, lot to talk about, but. A lot to talk about, but I think my, my favorite part is that Milan is basically becoming this Swiss army knife. And we're seeing more of the really weird side of Chandra, the inorganic side of them, because we've, mm-hmm. we've kind of explored through Tensoon the inhuman side, being able to, to become an animal, wolfhound specifically. And we saw from the sevenths in passing them kind of being exaggerated, but still humanoid. Some of them having four arms, and, and but but it's all still organic in a way. But to incorporate blades 
and and hidden like tools is very different from any sort of place that we've gone so far with the Chondra. But it's nice to see that extension of their capabilities. Yeah. And it it is it is a great it especially gets really interesting later when we talk about like her ability to like pick doors and things like that. Like there there are other flexibilities of the Chondra that make for a really great RPG character, but almost a frustratingly Swiss knife esque character that makes things almost too easy or like unexpected. But at the same mm-hmm. like what do you do when you've got an immortal being of whom can change form and build whatever the hell she wants out of whatever she has, you know? And I mean, make her a shit kicker. Like that's that's what they did. <laughs> that's what they. Did. That's what you do at the. Yeah, at the very least, there's that. So you know, it, it works out. I don't want to skip over the the kiss though, because it is a great moment. We we have the edge lord kind of moment with Milan in my head, and then <laughs> I do love the fact that she like holds up the arm later. <laughs> it's just there's there's a lot of like funny stuff with like a detached limb, which is very humorous, and the one guy writhing on the ground while the other three are dead. You know, while they're while they're chatting. Um, but the launch into the night is is truly there have been a couple of times this week in particular that the Brandon's prose from Stormlight shines through in the way that I like. Um, and this is one of them. Right. So this is one. The train ride at the very beginning that we or rather the, the cart ride, the carriage ride that we see at the beginning of 17 is another one. It's just wonderful. And the cigar on the top of the cliff at the end of this chapter as well. There are a couple of different descriptions where I'm like there you go there you go dude can you just i just want that all the time can you just give it can you please (laughs) i will take your word on it regarding the stormlight comparison but yeah i agree that it's an elevation to the to the pros that he's exhibited before yeah yeah it's it's just great and like him also getting lost in the kiss in that moment is wonderful you know it's it's good. It's sweet. It's cool. You can totally see it in a movie. It fits perfectly in a movie or TV show plot beat. More and more, as I think about Brandon's writing, I think that part of why I think I have this very sort of critical lens that can come off very critical of the prose is because it is almost as though he's writing something so mentally visual that he's imagining it on the screen first. It's as though he's, as opposed to writing a book to write a book, he's writing it to paint you the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I if think that so. makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. We move to Wayne and he's reading a fucking book. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sight for sore eyes. It's pretty fun in the moment. But of course, he can read. You know, it, it's uh, understandably, Marcy might assume otherwise, and we might assume otherwise as audience members because we know that he didn't really go to school. He didn't have a formal education and definitely didn't have the means to do so. He was raised kind of by the streets. But he picked it up as anyone can and would. I mean, I don't know that we've talked about this outside of maybe some early episodes, but like comparatively, I don't have an advanced degree or any anything fancy like that. So I I can agree with Wayne. You can be self-taught. There's nothing wrong with that, especially in other subject matters. But it's so great that he he takes this moment and just becomes real and grounded for a second because again, we've had these like very comedic beats punctuating things. And I, I like this bit where it's like, yeah, of course I read. I really like this book. It's got a great story. You should read it. But that is yeah. the group here begins well, to underpass. Well, I, 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 I want oh, yeah. to sure. kind of dig into that a little bit 
because mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I assumed wax or I, I assumed and almost thought it was contextual that Wayne was illiterate. And I, I like, obviously this is evidence to the contrary. And I'm sure that there's something that exists in previous books that says that as well. But for whatever reason, I had it in my head that he couldn't actually read. So I'm pretty sure that it is. I mean, I'm pretty sure that he does read some things like he can read and he definitely I, he he picks up a paper and read one of the newspapers at one point. So he can definitely read, okay. but not he's not well read, if that makes sense. Or he doesn't appear to be well read. So um, mm -hmm. but I think that he does play with his perception and people's perception of him often. And so I think he did toy around with that. And I think Marisi even stretches and makes the assumption that he cannot read. But we do get some counter context. Okay. That might be if that what makes I'm thinking sense. of then. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not textual that he can't read, but it, it is textual enough that like he's playing around with his intelligence actively with people so that they might assume less of him in those moments. Right. Okay. So, yeah. The group of them, though, begins to unwind this path and the trajectory that they've been set on by suit and how they could all be used to start this civil war. It's a really, really big kind of oof factor. You know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a way to put it. Big I mean, oof. it's it's all crushing mm -hmm. to to see or to realize that you're seen that way. I don't know. Yeah, it's. I think it gets even more specific later on, but Wayne, fucking shit, wax is particularly kind of beaten down by that a little bit at the end of this chapter. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where we where we end this section, right, in this chapter, in this part, is that he has been kind of, I mean, brutalized in, in a couple of different ways. So we end with Wax on a cliff in the darkness with a cigar. And, you know, we know, given the sort of structure of this town, it's all built into cliffs, so it's not like he went out on his own. He probably just went outside and sat down on the cliff. But... Uh, he lights up a cigar. It's one of his favorites that he can't believe that he still has. He's got a lot in his mind and speaks with Milan in this moment after she approaches him. And, you know, she's right. He has been set up, but it isn't his fault. He didn't have a choice in the matter. And he's been maneuvered around once again. And I think that this is what can be both a something to really appreciate about the writing of the story and then something that is a little bit I, I don't I don't think this is a fault of Brandon at all. I'm not trying to say that. Wax is, as a character, has been proven consistently to be deprived of actual choice. And so in this moment, again, he's deprived of what he perceived as choice because he, he can't do anything about the situation that he's been put into, just like he was with Harmony previously in the previous book and even in his entire life in the roughs. I mean, like, foundationally, it's it's as though the man has been trained and is continually pushed along rails that he can see, but he cannot fight against. And that is so frustrating for him. And I think it could be frustrating for us as readers if it didn't still feel like he had some agency in small moments and things like that. But it's, man, it's, it's tough. But yeah. in this moment, he does decide to take fate into his own hands. And we decide that we're going to ride on Dulcing despite the potential necessity of going back and reporting all of this and trying to, you know, head it off at the source before it could become an issue. Yeah, 
I mean, that's gonna suck, right? Mm -hmm. Realizing from not only one, not only your God, but your entire, like, society has been using you as, like, not your society, but the shadow society Mm -hmm. pulling the strings around your society has also been using you like a pawn. And that you are nothing more than a chess piece is crushing. I can't yeah. imagine reacting any other way. I, right. say, I would totally do the same thing. I would have some whiskey. I would get a cigar. I would sit in the darkness and I would just stare into the night sky. That's exactly what I would do. I've never, I've never empathized more with wax <laughs> than this moment. I am really excited to pick up some cigars and have some cigars in Salt Lake City, Shit. though. That's we have to do that. That's a good call. I should actually yep. get some, and then I can just bring them in the plane. That'll be fine. You could. I. I am be better. Strapped on space. Have a day. Yeah. And I don't think. Can you bring tobacco products through? I think them? so. I think so. Yeah. Hmm. Never tried, but I don't know. You know, I figured it'd probably out. be easy enough to just buy it there and get a cutter. Probably true. Probably true. Yeah. yeah. I have a check we'll back. See. I'll check something. We'll figure it out. We'll find cool. out. Anything else on chapter 16? No, I don't think so. Cool. All right. So going into part three, we're going to talk about chapter 17. So we did our first four chapters. Now we do the back four to round out this episode. So... You looked like you wanted to say something. No, no, 17's a good number. 17 is a great number. <laughs> I think 19's a better number, but 17's a good number. So our party finds them <laughs> themselves on their way to Dulcing. And there's this great moment here that happens. I, I mentioned it earlier, but describing the carriage ride, there's this like sort of hazy sort of sunset depiction that we get. And it just feels like open fields. It feels like that Wild West. It feels very <laughs> lovely in the way that it's described. We also get some internal monologue from Marisi, of whom is our POV, to start this chapter about not being jealous of Steris, but working through a lot of her emotions relating to Wax again and still. And yeah, I, I just I think it's a really strong moment that happens from Marisi's perspective. And then we do get this interesting conversation about Wax's origins here with Steris kind of on his shoulder, sleeping you know on him again, that I think is really great because it plays into this idea of the myth of a character or a person versus the reality of what they did and what they felt. And it feeds into that whole thing that we've been talking about this week. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to see that sort of bleed through this way on a shorter timeline and less religious timeline mm -hmm. um, or less religious connotation. Yeah, exactly. Which we've talked about in the past before. So good to see that kind of continue to be a thing. As opposed to just, oh, we talked about it, so it's done. Right. But regarding Marisi and her not being jealous of Steris, I don't quite know what to make of it. Because we're in Marisi's perspective. Why is she occupying so much of her time convincing? I, I don't know if it's convincing herself, but talking about how not into wax she is. Like, is, is it her convincing herself? Is it just that... She's constantly faced with not necessarily discrimination, but external points referring to it. Like, what's going on here and, and why is it so perpetual? It feels very consuming. 
for her from her perspective. The, interesting. So I, I can definitely see and understand that. I To me, this reads more of it. It's a little bit different in my head. And the way that I think about it is this is flipping the coin a little bit, right? So she's previously talked about not chasing after or yearning for wax as much and like that being out of her mind. This is pinpointing jealousy on Steris, right? And so this is really it's the same thing, though. It 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 revolves around the same central question, which is their relationship, and is she jealous of that relationship? But it is a very different approach, which is like th- you can't hate Steris. Like she's still she's still definitely convincing herself. I'm I'm not down talking that on the side of Marisy, but I do think that we also see that like she doesn't have to work that hard on Steris' side of the equation because she can't be jealous of her sister like her sister she loves her sister warts and all and like the warts aren't that bad but like their particularities and their are everything else and i think that's really what it's mm-hmm. pitching is like she can like she she can be obsessed with and like have him in the back of her, her mind but not have that be like the leading factor of their lives if that makes sense like there there's some line there that exists where she can't be mad at Steris for this. Yeah. She is kind of, at the very least, a little bit upset at her dad, but she's internalized a lot of that down the long stretch. Yeah. It's tough. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's a clean answer, but... Yeah, that's fair. Okay. I'm not suggesting that she's not jealous still, secretly, because she is doing a lot of work to talk herself out of being jealous. That's that's your head talk, right? That's your that's totally your, your headcanon with things. And so... She's kind of, it's like she's fighting her way out of a corner. And as she uncovers more and more about the myth of wax as well, it just kind of feeds into that. So, yep, I agree. We move to a period of detective work here where we talk about the letter and the cube and kind of inspecting them and checking them out here. There's a switch to activate the cube and some explanation with this new device as to how it seems to work. It seems to store the powers in the Alamancer as she burns her chromium and creates her own little speed bubble on accident that throws the horses off. It's it's kind of fascinating and is, in fact, an Alamantic grenade, basically. Mm-hmm. We see this in action a lot later, but you did call it. You literally I, called it an Alamantic grenade. I called it an aluminum grenade. Yeah, right, right. This is more expanded and even cooler than I had initially thought it to be. I assumed there would be similar cubes for different metals. This is much more versatile and truly makes more sense, I think, on a mechanic so wait, standpoint. I, I want to I just work this out. I don't think it's an aluminum. I don't think it was ever an aluminum grenade. I think it was a chromium grenade when it was used because chromium pulls from other people. Aluminum pulls from yourself based on the definitions. Mm-hmm. So it was chromium, regardless, same effect. Regardless, yeah. what I called it was aluminum. Yeah, because right. But it should have been chromium had, to explain. What we've had direct interactions with is aluminum depleting metals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We haven't and had it in context, chromium depleting metals yet. Have we? Yeah, no. We've had it mentioned that there are the ones that are capable of doing it. But I think that this is actually the use because I think this potentially points to Irish, I, Irish, I, Iric, Iric, whatever it is. I, I think Iric. it's Iric. Iric. It points to him being a leecher because he would have charged the grenade beforehand and then thrown it, you know? Yeah. That was my core point here is now that we know that it's a grenade, we can kind of backward work out that situation. 
So right. you may have called it aluminum because that was our assumption, but I think we can point to chromium being more likely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cool. What would you think about it on the whole? I mean, it, it it's technology. more that there's even more intricate augmentations to magic systems in, at play. And I, I think it makes more of a case for an external additional magic system as opposed to strictly technology enhanced allomancy Mm -hmm. if that makes sense like i I think i think it is technology enhanced allomancy but i think that much like hemallergy is in and of itself another magic system Hmm. so you think that it is a separate metallic art yes so okay all right and it it relies upon allomancy obviously i'd be curious like we we get a point towards the end of this section in chapter 20 where Marisi charges a metal mind. So presumably that's of the same sort of same art form, but ferrochemical based in some way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know what to well, make of that yet. It's interesting because I, I question whether or not it's separated from Alamancy entirely, like you're suggesting, like it's a separate art or, or ferrochemia or hemallergy. It does feel like it's more like, an application of the metallic arts on the whole because it's it kind of absorbs whatever's thrown into it and i think that's because i think it's tied to identity and the lack of identity with something like hemallergy is directly linked to identity ferrochemy is directly all three of those are directly linked to identity this is identity agnostic and so that makes me think not quite though i mean a little bit it still relies on what metals you have access to as an individual yes Totally, totally. You're right. But I still think that makes the metal identity agnostic because it can be handed from person to person, right? So it absorbs the power of the person of whom is using their metal in it and then disperses it appropriately. Right. With the flick of the switch. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm trying to... I, I understand does. exactly what you're saying with like, it. it feels like another metallic art, but it feels like it isn't necessarily metallic but art because isn't that the same as hemallergy though no because hemallergy has to kill a person in order to work functionally yeah but it can go into anybody yeah but you're taking someone still, else's and... identity and imprinting it upon someone else okay so you're imprinting identity on someone else which and is a little bit this different is imprinting than... an identity on anybody else well onto an object so that's the thing right. it's not a person it's not a spirit that's which, that's my which rationale. which to me like is a parallel to and mirror of hemallergy. Parallel, sure. I don't know that I would interact with those directly because I think that this is identity agnostic. That's kind of my okay. point. Is like this is this is removed from the elementic arts of which requires some form of seemingly self. they require some form of spiritual interaction, be it the actual snapping that creates that the strictly interestingly ferrochemical just bloodline trait or the hemallergic reaction of killing someone and then being imprinted with a part of their soul Mm -hmm. and i i I guess that hemallergy part is where it breaks down for me in your argument of it relying on identity because that feels like it feels like the same interaction but with a person instead of an object it absorbs the identity okay so if we think about this i I'm willing to interrogate this. I think this is interesting. So we think about the cube, right? 
you burn whatever your allomantic metal is, it puts in that power into the cube, which includes your identity. However, I, I assume, I assume it includes some trace of your identity or is imprinted with, there, there's something there. However, after however long you burn the metal into the thing goes away, your identity in the object disappears as well. So you are no longer the imprinted metal person thing in the object. And I think mm-hmm. the most important clarification for me is that a, a hemallergic spike is taking someone's identity, forcing it into the object, and then forcing it into someone else. I think this could become a hemallergic spike if you killed someone with it using the powers. Like, in theory, kind of. Maybe, yeah. but I, I think that's the separation for me between hemology and whatever this is, whatever this ends up being. I, uh, I guess the core of what I'm getting at is yeah. why does this not, in your opinion, fall into a new alimantic art? Because I think the alimantic arts specifically rely on the soul or the identity and the ability as a person to use magic on things. Okay. That's different than being reactive to magic, basically, if that makes sense. That's fair. Yeah. This is off the wall, but sure. uh, for whatever reason, it is uh, it popped up in my head while we were talking about this. If you were to spike someone, steal their powers mm-hmm. with, with hemorrhage, and then split the spike, do you have two spikes or do you have no spikes? Great question. So, as a part of our getting to get stuff signed, PJ, you get to ask Brandon questions for each book, and he will either he will either raffo or he will write the answer in the book. All right, cool. So, I mean, <laughs> point being, if you have good questions, keep them in your mind because you can ask them in those moments. So, all right, which is really cool. cool. I mean, I'm I'm psyched for this because this is something. Yeah, it, it'll be it'll be very cool, very exciting. That said. I think that you have two spikes with diminished total power, personally. That that would be my personal read on the situation. But it might be fragmenting mm-hmm. the soul too far, and so it might just expire the whole thing. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's my thought. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So part of me is like, I think this is more technology, which is still an art. I just don't think it falls under the alimantic arts. It still has its own rule set. Probably, but I don't think it falls under the same system of magic. There's another term for what this is. Can't talk about it yet. That's fair. That's fine. But that's that's also separate from the series entirely. So, like, I can't. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, right. Well, not even what this is necessarily, but there is a term and a different for. Ugh. Fuck. All right. We're moving on. So we go to Dalsing. We arrive at the city after some brief experimentation with the cube and kind of learning exactly how it works and kind of playing around with it. Fun. We leave Ceres with the horses, which is interesting. That happens a little bit later. But this is truly a compound here around the old town. And I kind of wanted your take just thinking about this, approaching this city and the way that they start to read this situation and think about what they're going to do as they approach Dalsing itself. Before we talk about the character moments and other things like that, what do you make of this internal like camp moment almost? I mean, in general, this entire book shifts for me genres and, and mm. goes from a Western detective novel to a 
adventure RPG detective novel. And I mean, even the, the detective part of it kind of falls off. It's, it feels much more like a, like an RPG story, like a tabletop game playing out in a typical fantasy realm. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to the Western that we established ourselves in and the elements are there obviously, but it it feels to have been pushed to the wayside a little bit in favor of this sort of adventure and political drama that we're unfolding now. I assume you go through the notes linearly um, Mm. for the most part. I assume you do. I do. I do make inside of our notes, a joke about this feeling as though, Milan has suddenly become a rogue with expertise and can lock pick really well and like can't roll below a minimum. Yeah, because it does. I totally agree with you. I think that this is right around the point in which we kind of get a genre shift where it feels like we have people playing around with sneaking around. It almost feels Scooby Doo-ish when we get there and nothing wrong with that. But it's very interesting that it really I think it really takes a heavy shift for me and it it becomes. Becomes sci-fi adventure RPG story. It becomes sci-fi to a certain extent as well. Oh, yeah. This story quickly goes steampunk in a way that is kind of unexpected. And, I mean, not, not and fully, extraterrestrial and unknown science. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's a lot of shifts that happen very, very quickly within a couple of uh, chapters. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I, I think we've talked about this a little bit, maybe off air, maybe on air. Maybe it's been cut. But I am both excited and a little bit leery of the last book. We talked about this with Ben, being that Brandon has talked about the Lost Metal being the most Cosmere aware book. I am a little bit leery about what that means for your enjoyment of that book. And potentially, if it maybe spoils anything else. That's the other part of this in the back of my head is like, as I think about the fact that you might read Stormlight later next year, is it going to contain things that potentially undermine the story there or like some beats of the story. It's going to very significantly kind of change the way that we approach the rest of the books within this series. Yeah. But I don't think it's really going to be possible for me to avoid spoilers altogether. Like I have up until this point going to this convention next week. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. They're, they're, they're going to be slight. That. Yeah. But in general, I've kind of resigned myself to the idea that there are going to be now going forward within the Cosmere situations where you're only five books behind. Like you're not. You're not that far off. To be fair, is that it? I mean, like, yeah, Warbreaker, and then the four Stormlight books. That's it, and some short stories. But okay. You are, you are going to be, when we are there, Warbreaker and Stormlight behind. That's it. Weren't we going to do Warbreaker? Yes. Towards the end of November, though, or early December. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. That's going to be a I mean, break. hypothetically, I could read it before. Like, yes. On yeah, the you plane. can totally, you can start that now. I have no problem with that. Okay. So I'll be Stormlight. If you want something. Stormlight back. back. Yes. Yes. But I am a little bit worried about undermining Stormlight because Stormlight is perhaps one of the most Cosmere aware books in that way. Fair. So hmm. yeah, I, I just, I have to make mention of it because it is, it's not something that I am 
It's something that I am trepidatious about going into this next book, but I am not necessarily at a loss. I just don't know what to expect. Yeah. So we'll see. A big part of me, I, I know components of the core story and where it's going with some things, but I, I worry, I just hope that it doesn't go one specific direction. <laughs> and if it does, I'm I'm gonna it's gonna it's gonna twist it's gonna twist me a little bit. It's gonna it's gonna really it would really it would really undermine one of the big Stormlight story beats. Because in my mind, the proper way to read this would have been Mistborn Era One, the other two books we could read on the side pretty much whenever, and then Elantris Warbreaker, and then Stormlight, and then Mistborn Era Two. However, chronologically for us, it makes sense to go this way for audience sake and everything else and coverage. So I'm a little okay. I'm just a smidge, just a smidge, I'm a smidge concerned. I got to be honest. And this is one of those moments that it came up for me was when this genre shifted and when we start to think about sort of the way that what's happening in the way that the the story is shifting something more sci-fi and everything else. So yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I just I had to bring up I have to bring up that anxiety because it is right now it's very real for me because I don't don't think he'll do it i don't think he would ever do it but i don't want it to undermine your stormlight experience so yeah that's fair ah, okay that out of the okay. way <laughs> steris and wax have this wonderful conversation about what she can do and i think it's lovely that she agrees first and foremost with her husband that she should stay behind it's it's kind of it's a really cool note because you can see exactly the trajectory that an average version of this conversation goes with in a story with a woman of whom wants to like not with a woman, but with a character of whom doesn't belong in a situation. Right. I mean, we have a perfect fit. example of that, and that's Marisy. Like, this is a stark. Oh, yeah. Right. From uh, Alloy of Law. Yeah. 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 A stark differentiation between Steris and her sister mm-hmm. in that, like. Wax is expecting to have to push against her, her, like, bullheadedness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this, this sets Marisy apart from, sets Steris apart from Marisy, and vice versa, I suppose. So I appreciated this deviation from that trope, I guess, for that reason specifically. Yeah, exactly. It feels it's a great moment. It's punctuated well. It's comedic. I mean, especially in the way that it executes with like Wax just going off without actually even listening to what she's saying because she's agreeing yeah. the whole time. You know, it's great. It, again, this is to me, this is only upwards for their characterization as a as a pair. and I love it. Right. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And great comparison between Marcy. I hadn't even thought about drawing that, but that makes sense. You know. Yeah, it's, it's similar to like even the way that Wayne's put into his place in the Shadows of Self prologue in a similar way. It's like, you can't come in. You have to take care of the horses. You have to take care of Destroyer, the horse. <laughs> yeah. There, there's this whole cannibalism comment by Minlon that leads to the <laughs> execution of Stewed Tomato, which is this other plan where they talk splattered about tomato? riding her in as a horse. Is it? What is it? Splattered Tomato? No, Splattered spo- Tomato. Not spo- spo- spoiled. Tomato. Spoiled Tomato. Spoiled. Spoiled Tomato. That's stewed it. Tomato. I think it's better. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I think I already came <laughs> up with one that was better without even trying. You're right, though. It is it is some form of tomato, which is this hilarious pairing of moves where Wayne and Wax pull, pull this off together by launching him over the barrier. He manages to imitate a guard, unplug a light, 
on accident, blame it on the other guard, get him arguing and help his other fellows through. You know, it's it's this fairly brilliant moment for for Wayne that I just adore. And it also gives us insight into gold burning on the whole, which is great. It's further clarification on things that you and I had kind of had banter about comparing Wolverine Deadpool to this, mm-hmm. which I think is is fun and to like kind of know that like one of the fun facts that comes out of this is, you know, the spine breaking, you're more likely to die from suffocation, which then mirrors Iroot's experience later that he talks about, like his death is most likely going to be suffocation. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there it also there's... Means... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say it leads to the reveal as well from his perspective of the crashed boke. boat, 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 any other week, PJ, we would have ended here, but this week we are not. Uh, this is enough. This is like a, a great, great point to end. We have to cover a little bit more. It is. I would agree. Like, I would have expected this to be an end section. I appreciated the sort of grumbling, even though this is Wayne's idea. And he's the one pushing for it. Comes up with a separate code name for it as well but he's still grumbling while flying through the air before he hits the ground just complaining like of course wax would push me towards rock bed and all kinds of stuff he's falling and he like falls right next to something that would have actually killed him yeah so him him breaking the fall with his legs to be more quiet and tapping the gold mind immediately before his head contacts like it's all Mm -hmm. insane it did make me wonder if Gold burning is similar to pewter in that it would be reflexive and could be done unconsciously. I think and the answer is no because of the difference between ferrochemy and allomancy, right? Because al- pewter burning, it's in your stomach, it's there, your body might reflexively burn it. You have to actively choose to tap into a metal mine. Okay. Um, so for me, that's the delineation between the two. I don't think that it would be reflexively unconsciously used. But that's not to say that it that I might be wrong. That's just my impression of a difference. Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me, and I think I agree with you. We're rapidly approaching the point, PJ, where we have the same knowledge on the series. You literally yeah. one more episode, well, two if we include Secret History, and then we're at the same point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's fair. the The other thing is we have all of these code names now, mm-hmm. and. All I want to know is what each of them actually means because they sound hilarious. And it'd be fun to fun to learn that. But they do sound hilarious. It sounds so great. I mean, like it it does feel a little we talked about this a little bit earlier, but there's like the writing for the movie audience already that's like in this, right? This feels like a this feels like a Joss Whedon joke, if that makes sense. Like this. Yeah totally in execution the only thing that was running through my head this week is how whedon-esque this feels not in the sort of verbose way that he can get about certain things but the way the humor is pulled off over the course of this week felt very whedon-esque right right for sure which is i mean i love firefly i enjoy buffy you know i can't believe i got the firefly question wrong yesterday jesus yep neil beat me to the punch bastard it's fine so with that we end this chapter, we go into chapter 18. We move to the actual infiltration and our kind of pairs here that we have. But we we hop into Marisi's point of view to begin this and the infiltration of the warehouse itself, having split into these two groups searching distinctly for whatever exactly might be going on in this building. The pair of M's and the pair of W's 
split into two. Maris and Milan head into the ship. Meanwhile, Wax and Wayne are looking for suit. When Wax hands, when Wayne hands Wax some apple juice that was in his canteen, it's a funny moment punctuated with Wax really feeling his age at the end of this and beginning to feel like this might not be for him. Well, not that it might not be for him, but that he's like aging out of his career to some degree. Yeah, I think Wayne Wayne's comment is something along the lines of you got to keep your stomach guessing and and that otherwise you'll grow complacent. That's actually is, factual. That's the health factual thing. You do actually want to keep your stomach guessing because your gut biome, you want to be shifting as much as possible. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing. But what I want to highlight the most is Marisi and Milan's back and forth throughout this entire section. It, it does a really good job of reestablishing for me what we're doing here and what's going on. There's a lot of sort of repeated exposition i guess but it it focuses us and makes us like really hyper aware of where we're going in this section is this where we get the finger lock pick as well or is that later i know that's chapter later 19. yeah 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 no you're right it, it really does it grounds us again in the why we're here which i think is important because it di- it does feel like this could be a really big jump to make between Two chapters ago, we were at a party on a cliff face, and now we're in the middle of a warehouse in a compound city, you know, Far Cry 3, Far Cry 4, Far Cry style, breaking in and moving through doors. You know, that's not even right. It's more Metal Gear Solid in the way that they're doing things. But yeah, it's it's just, it's so good. I do want to mention, though, the M&M's pairing up and the W&W's pairing up. It's as though Brandon is very aware <laughs> <laughs> that he created too many names with too many similarities and he's just he's pushing it on us a little bit and he's like hey did you i i fucked up kind of but like it's kind of neat right like these they work as pairs <laughs> they do yeah and you wouldn't have expected it either i mean you, you do obviously with the with the wayne and wax part right but marcy and wayne and wax and milan fucking shit god damn it Exactly. and Wax and Wayne and Milan are the more natural breakdowns. They're parallels. Yeah. 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 And they, they are they definitely have histories and they, they work well together as we know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got the detectives paired with the imitators on both sides. So mm-hmm. it makes for good teams across the board. Right. Which, which again, we talk about the RPG-ness of this chapter, and that does feel like a decision that was could have been actively made as a group, which is, you know, fun. But that's what happens when you're dealing with a party of players. So we right. move then to a new point of view, that of Irik, Suit's right-hand man in this business and the man from the train with the cube and the cane. And he's got a rather weighty expiration date hanging over his head as we learn throughout the chapter. He is part of the reason that he's using a cane to begin with is because he's steadily deteriorating. I think that this is without saying it, Brandon talking about MS because it does feel very representative of MS in the way that the body fights itself and degrades itself in this way. It's very much progressive MS is very similar family member with progressive MS. So I understand actually she's got remiss and remitting, but needless, this does feel like a representation herein try to get us in this perspective and like his goal now has shifted from sort of he can take as long as he wants to now he has to do things in a certain time frame so 
Mm-hmm. But kind of getting this tour of the Enigma moving away from him, and we see this massive airship from a couple of different set members' perspectives because he's kind of like leading a guided tour so that the set can maybe get more money or like capture attention or make sure that the resources are being well spent to perpetuate what they're planning on doing um, as a group. Yeah, this and, one, uh, he's, we also he's learned of its primarily. Oh, sorry. That's it. We also learn of its crew and occupants. Like, we learned so much here. What do you think? Yeah. First of all, this is absolutely where sci-fi mode activates mm-hmm. in this book. Rick's perspective, though, I really enjoyed. And it, it felt unique in that we're actively interrogating somebody's gait because it's not natural <laughs> for them. Yeah, right. And, and is like constantly shifting. So that that's a new point of view thing, I guess. And then there's these conversations with the scientific community that he's courting to a certain extent. And seeing the seeing how involved he really is and how manipulative he can truly be in that he's he's making these speeches and he's realizing, "Oh, I'm losing them." I'm not talking to politicians. They're not out for power. They're out for knowledge. How can I, how can I twist to this and, and make them on board and then putting a note in the back of, back of his mind to like tell set, Hey, or tell, uh, tell suit, make sure you're, make sure they're perceived as utilitarian scientists, as opposed to power seekers. Because that's what you're, that's what's going to get the most reaction. Yeah, it just it gives a tangibility to the set that we really haven't gotten before, and we've we've had some sense because of suit and sequence, who's been mentioned a couple of times, and now Irik, who's an actual perspective into this that we can actually be like, okay, wow, we know that there are ranks. We find out that he's an array which wherever that stands on the pyramid, we don't really know. But there, there's just so much information that is packed into this tight space. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Irik in his mention of Gate is so close to a character from the first law that is depicted in chapter two that it is, I, I really enjoy it. I'm glad it's brought up. It does feel so close, but for very for very different reasons. One character is tortured, that leads to that gate. This character is tortured by a disease that rules their body. And so this is, this is very interesting as comparisons go. And I appreciate it. I, I like it in both ways. Yeah. It is so fascinating to have a different perspective, especially when it comes to things like stairs, the sort of stumbling walk and the way that you might internalize that and, you know, components therein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sci-fi mode engaged. We are fully we're, we're evaluating ceilings. We're thinking. It, it reminds me, actually, the first scene that pops into my brain as well. Have you seen, I have to ask this because sometimes I assume and you haven't, Prometheus? Ridley Scott's Prometheus? I believe so, yes. It's one of, it's one of the two Alien prequels. So there's yep. that and then Alien Covenant. So in the same way that like Elizabeth Shaw walks in and she sees the dome over top and she sees like history and they see the progenitors and they see all these different components that make up that this reminds me of that but like turned into a history tour where he's trying to raise funds for you know effectively the their pursuits and like show the evidence that they actually spent their money with yeah it, it, to me it felt less like he was trying to extort 
or extract money out of the people and more just getting the work out of them, getting them to join. That's fair. Extortion. Yeah, that's actually a good way of comparing it. And I, I wouldn't even call it extortion. I, I think of it more as fundraising. Like it's more of a, it's a soft sell, but it is a hard sell in actually doing the work with them. Right. Yeah. Yep. I, I agree with that. So we move back to our M's here, hiding in a closet as Irish hobbles away, having found a cube. And he's been searching all of these different compartments to try to find more of these cubes. And he, he can't. And then one of them pops open and drops out a cube. And he's like, I'm so excited. Of course, we know that it's the cube that <laughs> they actually chose to drop for him as a way mm-hmm. to get him to lead away to somewhere that's more important. But it's very Scooby-Doo-esque for me in the way that they're kind of like leaning out of a closet, as I imagine, <laughs> like watching what's happening with little like eyes poking out. He walks away. Mm-hmm. We move over then to our WWs, Wax and Wayne are looking down at this whole scene from above. They're kind of inside. They're not in the ship, but they're inside the warehouse and kind of running around the railings and exploring the full space, looking down at it. But we find in this moment, Telson is here and that Irish has her and that the set has her in control of her. Wayne talks, wax down in a shocking turn from charging in and will suit up in engineer's clothes to make it all happen so that they can actually pull off something that could actually free her as opposed to just charging in guns a-blazing. And I think it's really interesting, like Wayne talking Wax down for a change. Yeah. Wax is kind of off the rails this entire section. Yeah. After leaving his comfort zone, he's much more reactive thinking a lot less and maybe that's the fact that it's his sister but we get that with wayne as well and he's always pretty cool and collected when it comes to wayne being in danger so i there's something going on here and i don't know if it's active or passive or just kind of new new territory i think this gets back to something that we talked about earlier right i think this gets back to the Wax is actually, he feels like he's in control of his destiny for once. He hasn't talked to Harmony. Harmony's not controlling him and directing him directly. Suit doesn't anticipate him or expect him. And so, like, he is grabbing hold of something because he chooses to. And so I think that that is also overcoming him. He doesn't feel like he has to protect anyone immediately, necessarily. And, you know, his sister that he assumed was dead is here, alive, and he can help her. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's a couple things. What... We talked about this last week, I think, and I drew the conclusion that his sister is actually a Chandra from it. But it, are we to assume that this ship is where that picture was taken? Which picture? The picture of her? No, I think that was in Dulcing. Or, sorry, not Dulcing. I, that was in New Saren. Okay. They identified the picture as in New Saren. Right. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. But what's your, what's your conclusion? regardless I, mean, I can't remember if that picture pointed to it being fucking old did it i don't feel like no. we actually came to that conclusion or maybe we did and i forget but for whatever reason it, it made me think that she was a chondra because it it was an older picture than she would have been and she hadn't changed and now she looks old comparatively which is another thing that gets commented a lot upon oh, a couple you're different right. times. There was some context there in terms of the, the photo versus there was a little bit. I would need to re-examine it, but that's a good question because I don't fully remember. Okay. 
I don't think it's that old though. It, it still was modern enough that it was recognized, like the backdrop was recognizable. But it's a fair point to ask at the very least, like was was she younger in that photo when it was taken versus now? But there's a lot of comments about how old she looks from both her and or from both Wax and Wayne, which yeah feels direct and a little bit out of place in at least at least from wayne's perspective from wax's perspective i get it in that he hasn't seen her in years but to repeat that from wayne is odd yeah and i think that i think these comments are later i think it's in the next chapter but yeah it is when they actually interact with each other directly but i i agree with you i think that it is I, I wouldn't go so far as to say odd necessarily as so much as like the loss of time. We'll talk about it more in a minute, but I, okay. I do I do definitely want to bring that up and talk about it in context. So chapter 19, we get into kind of the meat of some of the things that we've already talked about, but we get we get the substantial bits here. So I'm excited to break these down. We have even more infiltration here as we start the chapter and some really cool use of expertise here with our rogue of the party, Milan, being able to hide her lockpicks in her hand. What a clever use of body of holding, I guess, as you think about it. Yeah, it's a really neat racial feature that she has there. <laughs> but then we also get an incredibly well thought out idea from Marisi about Milan's usefulness as a historical scholar and could provide so much insight. Milan dismisses a lot of this with a trite point that history repeats effectively. She's not necessarily saying that exactly, but she kind of gets to that. That's kind of the soul of some of what she's saying and points to the people of old as an example for us here of that myth of there being knowledge in the past, which is interesting. There's a lot to talk about. Where do you where do you want to start? I mean, it's kind of in a jaded way, but I like that she brings up the old crew. And I think it's let it's less history repeats itself and more. Y'all are worshiping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of kind of never meet your heroes kind of do but it it brings reality and more focus primaracy i feel like or that's the intention and kind of breaks that perfect image of the the storybook heroes that we already know and but it also gives us more perspective on them after the fact right and yeah. learn that they were squabbling and they just didn't at all consider anything outside of Ellendale when it comes to like building up the, the future government and, and society. Yeah. And, and for the most part, the myth that you and I have been interrogating over the course of this podcast series, talking about era two has been mostly about Kelsier, but this puts everyone else into question. Like we've been interrogating the, the survivorist religion, this moves away, this book in general, I think, to some degree, moves away from the religious connotations and, and interrogation and instead moves towards the sort of historical and mythological processes of becoming a part of a myth, a foundational myth, mm-hmm. and starts to try to break those down as it, as it happens, you know? It, it brings into question, I think, a lot, of, a lot of things in a very interesting context, but definitely Don't Meet Your Heroes is kind of the core. You're right, it's more than history repeats itself. There is notes of that which is like you shouldn't look to them because like they were doing what you were doing anyway which is the history repeats itself but at the same time the context there is like they are were just as dumb or as smart as you were exactly and who better to bring this up than a rebellious seventh 
Right. right. You know, like, of course, it's yeah. Her. Yeah. Who's maybe not the best point, which also Marisi comes to terms with is like, maybe I shouldn't interview a different Condra. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Because, you know, a little bit less jaded than Milan's perspective, perhaps. But, you know, it's, it's hard to read for sure. Any any thoughts on the sort of you mentioned earlier, but the Swiss Army knife that is Milan? I mean, the the lockpicks are so fucking cool. You know, all of it. And and the I don't think it's here, but it's close to here of her skin going translucent and like effectively finding the the proper tumbler locations for the for the safe. Yeah. Cool yeah, I think it's in the I think it's when we cut back to the safe after we go with engineer Wayne on a walk. So that is that is very interesting. It does get to this sort of she can solve any riddle kind of a thing. I don't think it's a problem because I think that she has other restrictions. But it also, they get to speaking about Chandra in a very sort of a more explicit way than we've gotten before, where she's like, I would love to pick your mind. I would love to like see what's inside your head. And she's like, my thigh. Marisi's like, what? And it's like, you want to see inside my thigh? That's where my brain is right now. And it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which gets into that thing that we were talking about earlier, which is like chondra organs seem to be fluid wherever they need them to be. Or decide them to be. Yes. Like yeah. there's an emergency canteen in our skull. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is it filled with water or whiskey? Which which do you think? That's whiskey, obviously. Whiskey, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a great bit. I really, I really enjoy it. So we move then from there over to Engineer Wayne, as mentioned earlier. Continues to walk in the open, you know, and begin begins to explore the role of playing an engineer and making a mockery of a couple of the set members here. Speaking in very big words and terms that mean absolutely fucking nothing and intimidating slash like it, it's so it's so clever because it's definitely true. And I was a victim of this for many years when I was younger. But like sometimes you just like nod and agree because you don't understand and said you should be interrogating and asking questions, especially if you're someone who's inquisitive. Like it, most of the engineers that I actually know would ask questions in this moment, being like, what? But people <laughs> of whom, you know, are self-consumed with that pride, they they won't ask in the immediate moment. They'll just like nod and agree or consent. And oh, man, what a, what a fun moment as begins to distract these people so that Wax can begin his part of the extraction. Yeah, there's an explicit callback to that party where he in, impersonated that mathematician slash inventor mm-hmm. so it's cool to see that explicitly drawn upon as the origin point for his understanding of how to do this yeah. so we saw we saw the beginning and end of this sort of expertise and we can fill in the blanks as far as his practice goes but yeah i mean he this is a very clear example of him creating a persona for himself and rehearsing that in character until he can use it as a springboard for like, the, the background, the background that he creates of himself. I mean, he uses it as a springboard for conversations with other people. So he's, 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 he flubs it to begin with about his, why is he here? What's his motivation and what's his feelings about his surroundings? And it gets a little complicated, a little bit hairy. And he, backs up and like restarts and refines and we we see his process and it's really fucking cool you know 
of becoming is, this engineer. Yeah. This is maybe the most fleshed out version of Wayne becoming someone, right? Like he's really breaking it down in live time with us. And he's especially because it's something he's so uncomfortable with. It's a new territory. It's not entirely new. He's taking inspiration from the mathematician as mentioned before, but it is something that he just isn't fully fluent in, it feels like. And so he's taking inspiration from things in the past and moments. He draws it all in and he does this absolutely obtuse engineer performance, which is hysterical. And it's in in like its articulate inability to say anything because everything he says is nonsense, but everyone around him believes it because it is so nonsensical that, you know, sounds like yeah. engineers speak without it actually meaning anything <laughs> yeah yeah for sure the only rival As an engineer, to this, were you offended no I'm not at all the only rival to this i think in context is is it it might be an alloy of law where he's imp- impersonating the old woman yeah that is alloy of law yeah and and we get a Pretty very detailed background and uh backstory to why she's making these decisions that she's making. But this one's even more fleshed out and more complete, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Love it. Great moment. Great moment. All right. We hop back to Maracine Milan, as we had mentioned earlier, and they do manage to find Relure's Chondra Spike instead of the safe, as you'd mentioned, the translucent skin and kind of the ability to break through that lock in the tumbler being very easy for our Chondra here. As well as some strange discs that are in that safe, as well as the Alimantic Cube that they had used earlier as kind of the teaser treat to get him to show them where the safe was to begin with. Marisi frees the person in the, I think it's in the hallway? Is it in the room or is it in the hallway? This is the one thing that's confusing uh, about the scene. There's a lot that's confusing to this scene for me as far as actual like floor spatial. plan and setup goes. Yeah. The, the spatial stuff is pretty fluid in my yeah. mind. Hard, I again, I'm I'm a little bit lost on this on this in this moment. But frees the person from the cage of whom we learn, you know, begins to kind of free the others from their imprisonment. There's a child in another cage. I don't think it's in this room. I I feel like it's in a hallway or it's somewhere nearby um, that they walk past to begin with, and then they come back out and free, and then he goes back in for the safe and whatever else. But, you know, they free others from their imprisonment. We get pleas as a language and we get no other really touchstones of being able to speak the same language as them. They draw a connection that he's from another place. And it's a place far away from here. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, that makes us presume that the ship itself is also from far away from here. Sure. With the context that we know presumes that it's another planet entirely so that's super why do you cool. think it's another planet because this is so so alien and without any sort of back backup anything we also don't get any interjection from milan who is in direct communication with harmony i don't know that's that's something to interrogate elsewhere i guess i i do wish we would have had milan's perspective from this because there is the very obvious parallels with the shape-shifting and the fluid nature of these uh, of, of this specimen it would have been cool to see her break down the similarities and differences internally but it's a very small complaint and i don't know what would have come of it yeah i don't i don't fully know yeah right it would have been interesting to see that kind of intricacy. 
I mean, back in Irich's perspective, there's a lot that they're trying, like all the people in the tour are trying to interpret the gold drawings on the ceiling. And they're saying like, oh, there's three genders. Oh, there's all this shit. And there's, there are all these different moments. They're trying to put things into boxes. And I, I think it's nice here that we are in Marisi's perspective because she isn't necessarily trying to rationalize it immediately. Instead, she's just trying to do the best thing for the people and like trying to interpret his feelings, his emotions through a very limited window. So yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but I understand the the inclination to go into that because that would be Clarity's perspective, right? A little bit of mystery is not bad. It's it's not, you know, come on, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. We round out this chapter with Wax managing to make it to Telson. They embrace after many many years having not seen each other. It's a bittersweet moment punctuated by all the time that's been lost between the two, right? So uh, more than a decade of time in theory and and all the time that Wax was in the roughs even like between A and B. So like they have lost so much time between each other. But unfortunately, in this moment in which they're kind of being able to both look at each other and be like, you're so old, there's a man that catches them and tells and shoots him sounding an alarm for the group to have to deal with over the course of the next chapter puts yeah. tension and action into what's about to come next. It does. I also truly believe that if she hadn't acted in that way, it would have gone down the same way anyway. Mm-hmm. I feel like an alarm was being raised either way. Sure. And if it's by gunshot or by, I don't know, physical alarm or crying, it doesn't matter. So yeah, she, she makes the comment about being a fast learner when it comes to like, having experience with guns but seems to be relatively proficient i mean not proficient but well enough versed in them so i'd I'd be sufficiently yet skilled yeah i'd be curious to see her actual experience this is this is that scene where the the age comments come from both wax and wayne and i really do i think wayne's come in the next chapter but wax has come here Okay. Because Wayne is out of the room now. Is it weird? Or am I just reading into it too much? Is it weird that they both comment on it? I think you're reading into it a little bit. I think that it's more of like a, literally, we've been separated by decades. Like, imagine not talking to your sibling or like seeing them because you, A, like you chose to move very far away without any realm of communication and physically seeing someone. You know, it's not like being Zoom or something else, FaceTime. And then B, they die in your perspective, you go to their funeral and you've got this memory of them in the back of their head as this young person that you knew growing up. That's why I think that the age is more of a shock than it is anything else to all of them. To me, that's my perspective. Yeah, I can can believe that. I can get behind that. That said, I do want to try to reinterrogate the photograph. I would need to go back and reread that chapter though. I I need Um, to as well. I don't think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to pause it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not confident enough to even try. So we'll move on. Okay. Um that said, I do I do really enjoy the way that this chapter ends. It's such it's such a good moment. And in another world, it would have ended here. Because <laughs> <laughs> it could have been fun. But chapter 20 is an even bolder place to end, I think, because you get the most big cliffhanger which is a crazy fucking moment that we're going to have to talk about as we go through this chapter. So talking about chapter 20, we cut to one of the most brilliant action scenes, multi POV action scenes that Brandon has written thus far into the series in my head. 
I assume in your head as well because you mentioned yep. earlier you're excited to talk about it. It's hard for me, again, It's it can be hard to like dictate how cool great action scenes can be in moments, especially with like crazy magic and things like that going on. There are interesting components that go into things. It's like you see people strategically move around, but let's talk about these beats as we can. So Wax and Tel- Telson move out of the room as the guards in the area have been activated. He quickly stashes Telson by launching himself up into the air before, before heading off with Wayne to get Marisine and Milan so that they can all leave together. This plan quickly goes awry as Telson proves to be difficult to control. Not wanting to find herself falling back in hands of her old captors, she ends up climbing down and like trying, you know, basically to save herself. Wayne splits to help Telson and Wax to get the pair of M's, Milan and Marisine, over to the rest of them. But Wayne, Wayne gets hit with a ton of gunfire in this moment when he makes his way over to Telson, and it awakens something primal in Wax, a need, a rage, perhaps, to protect his friends, his friend, rather, in this moment. And then there was a firefight, man. I mean, this is, this is, if, we, we mentioned a couple of times over a couple of different series now, like the Boondock Saints moment in which that breaks out. This is that moment again, in which you can imagine the guns going off in every direction. Marisi saves the day when it was almost like when Wax is almost killed with his element. Like, she uses her element seed of empower the grenade, throw it out, and save Wax. There's just so fucking much here. What'd you like? What was your thing? What, what'd, you, what'd you vibe with? I mean, th- this is... This whole scene is extraordinary, and it's so fast, and there's so right. much going on. Truly, I feel like this is one of my favorite combat scenes we've seen from Branderson in general up until this point. And I, I can't yeah. speak, obviously, to the other series. But between Elantris, Mistborn Era 1, and Mistborn Era 2, this is, I feel like, the best balance of everything that we've seen from Branderson. There's emotionality to it. There is the, the straight-up, shot by shot mechanics of the fights there's there's stakes there's There's everything it it is so well done and it's hard for me to like really break it down beyond that because there's there is a ton that happens but it all flows together and all makes sense it works really really well it's always interesting to me if you look at the audiobook pacing in a chapter in which there's a bunch of action, it is so chapter 20 and chapter 19 are the same length page count wise. However, mm-hmm. chapter 20 is double the time in audiobook form because of the way that Michael Kramer has to go through and pronounce and like make sure that he can jump between perspe- perspectives, voices, and give like attention to different details in different moments. It's it's yeah. so good. And that's that's why some of these scenes end up being double as long as they should be. In theory, if like you just have a raw read rate, yeah, because you need to give attention to all these different moments and beats. But at the same time, it is just well executed. It's hard for us to like talk about it more than, yeah, no, that was good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I feel bad for that, but anybody who's read it will kind of understand, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And the use of the Almantic grenade over the course of these scenes, man, like. Wax makes use of the grenade as we switch perspectives, him having charged it up and left it there to create a little force field for on temporarily to help them get in order before they can address the rest of the room. There's also this funny moment where with our unnamed masked man, where he is speaking, of course, his entirely different language. He's like, come on, like 
just do the thing. And, you know, it's it's a very he's like begging them to pull them back into the ship. And all that he knows and all that he can say is please and is trying to direct them that way. Meanwhile, Wax by and large agrees with the idea and they end up doing that in the end. But shortly thereafter, Marisi gets hit and goes into shock. And we switch POVs in like what is a very kind of intense moment. Like this is not something that's expected when you're reading through this chapter. But ultimately a good thing because we do kind of have what feels like some plot armor on some characters. So it's good. to That's been a problem before. It feels like it's being addressed throughout the story. Yeah. And I I think Marisi getting shot is a growth for her character as well. It, It roots her in more realism and roots her as an actual constable as opposed to a theoretical constable that she's kind of been presented as throughout the entire time. Like it gives her some street cred for the lack of a better term. Uh, totally going forward. There's obviously like the physicality of it immediately. It, it's shock and confusion, but w- without pain, explicitly without pain, followed by excruciating pain and, and, just all-consuming senses. So it's cool to see that happen in perspective. Yeah, I, I think it's a great moment to that point entirely. Oh, man, what a what a moment. And, and I think that we've been missing that for a while. I think we got some of it in Mistborn Era 1 with Vin like passing out at different times from pewter burning too much or pewter dragging rather. But for the most part, it's never been, it's always been self-inflicted and this is something external, right? So this is a choice right. or this isn't a choice that a character made. This is truly someone being forced into the corner. Mm-hmm. If anything, I think that plot armor is thicker on average in the Mistborn books than I think it should be for characters. But at the same time, yeah. some of them you know, just get hit at wildly and killed randomly almost so to just kind of take it a step further this might Mm -hmm. effectively dispel some of that myth that wax has like she she has an accounting and understanding of every single time he's been shot textually Mm -hmm. but to see to to see it just kind of happen like this suddenly not no big deal but, I mean, it's nothing to to make excruciating notes on, you know? Right. Like, th- that might dispel some of the regard that she has for his, his rough's persona. Yeah, at the very least, it puts it in context, right? Like, that's the biggest thing for me is, like, it, it gives, it demystifies the gun injury, the bullet wound, everything else. A little mm-hmm. bit for her. Yeah. So from there, we go back to Wax, of whom is basically toying with these other Valomancers, using clever tricks to dispatch them fairly brutally. And Wayne, Wayne, with that charge grenade, is ready to take these fools on as it's been charged with the steel push capability. And so it pushes out from the grenade center everywhere against them, blowing away these people's weapons, giving him the opportunity to jump in using the steel bubble basically to whip on them all with his dueling canes and take them out. It's a great moment. Again, it's, we mentioned this earlier, but it's a very RPG like in the way that it plays out, which Mm -hmm. is fun and fine. Totally reasonable. Nothing wrong with that. But 
while that's going on, Wax is still taking out as many as he can on top of and around the ship when a horn sounds and the reinforcements begin to pour out of all of the surrounding buildings. What do you think of this this component of the scene? Again, we're still in this action sequence. There's so many different beats that like it's hard to consume and talk about them all. But, you know, highlights, favorite moments. I mean, favorite moment is obviously when he like offensively uses Renette's grappling ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the it's a good one. haze killer is it haze killer i would call it a haze killer i think it's referred to as a kill squad can, repeatedly but i would call it a haze killer because it's targeted haze killer is mentioned in this section like as individuals they're they're haze killer soldiers yeah trained that. haze killer hitmen but like yep. they're referred to as the kill squad right it's, it's, um yeah so the the comments of like outsmarting them even with this thing to not drop your shield stuff like that like it's it's very fast it's very each individual moment isn't that important but all of it together makes for a very very cool scene mm-hmm. yeah oh it's delicious i'm not gonna lie i i love <laughs> i love the way that that moment goes off when he takes out the the man with the with Renette's trick wire tool, you know the the grappling thing. Yep. It's it's so fascinating because it's like, oh, fun toy. Fun you paid toy. attention to the fun toy, and I shot you in the face. Like, <laughs> yep. yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. From that moment, we move to Marisy, of whom is in an intense amount of pain. And everyone begins to collapse in on her to help her and come up with a plan to make it out of this situation. The mysterious man helps bandage her up while Telson is still out for blood and desire to kill all of these people in this room. Just angry and aggravated by, you know, being captured and tortured. Probably not tortured, but captured and held prisoner for so many years. Everyone is distracted trying to make a plan when Marisi follows the mysterious man and a mysterious hatch opens with a rope ladder falling out of that golden ceiling that we had mentioned earlier. He makes for a chest inside of that room as everyone begins to climb in and pulls out another of the small discs. He then begins to speak what I'm going to call common, whatever the Elendelian language is. And wow, is there a lot to say about this part of the story referring to them as maskless barbarians as he is wearing, of course, this mask that R'hllor had drawn as these frightening creatures with red around them. And it's this sort of horrifying thing referring to wax as a metallic one. And there's just so fucking much. So I'm going to break this. I'm going to try to break this into two. What are your thoughts on this moment? What do you think of man? What do you think of the the movement away from the action? Does it work for you? And we'll talk about the ship after this. It's chaos. This whole section is chaos. But this specifically, there's just so much going on. This man and the use of these discs as communication devices is insane and interesting and there's an accent mentioned so it's not necessarily a perception thing like it's hard to understand exactly what's going on like it's not like uh it's not like a babble fish yes great great Uh, call i was thinking the same thing where where like they perceive it differently than what's actually being said like with the fact that there is an accent to it it makes it seem like the the actual voice is being changed and and audibly made like there's a distinction there right 
Like it's not like he's speaking a language and they're perceiving it as their language. It's that he's speaking something into this thing and it's expelling their language. And that's a subtle difference, but it's a difference. Unanswered. Unanswered. It's unanswered, but yeah. but my opinion is that the fact that there is an explicitly mentioned accent to it makes it external. I, I wanna I wanna just throw in a little thing there just to you know, add a little bit of maybe confusion to what you're thinking. Could it be that whomever encoded this thing with whatever it was had an accent? Possibly. Yeah, that's yeah. fair, too. I mean, talking about language interpretation, right? Like, it could be. I mean, that accent is also, what would you call it? Russian, Scandinavian, the exact same accent as Obsidian's. Bola. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. As who? Obsidian's? Oh, yeah, fair. I mean. Obsidians and <laughs> Bolo Aorians from uh, Critical Role. So. <laughs> yeah, so no, that. you're not wrong. <laughs> I, I mean, that's audiobook only, but still. Oh. Just to give it something that feels very strange and different. So, yeah, that does add yeah. like a, a flavor, a taste to it a little bit. There's a question there of like how authoritative is that as a language, which will be interesting. I I think that's an interesting question to interpret, interpret, especially because this is a, a foundational difference between an audiobook and a reading narrative without mm-hmm. like giving it some sort of sense of like drawn out vowels or some other way of describing it, you know, to like give description to an accent right. versus just choosing one. So not to not to I'm not shaming Michael Kramer or Brandon for not writing or writing it, but you know, when you're depicting an accent, that's an interesting, it's a tough task to try to convey. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, All right. It's different. PJ, we end this week on the wildest of notes, <laughs> um, especially for the series <laughs> so far. As Wax straps himself into the ship and launches the small boat away from the main vessel, using Alamancy to power and push this whole thing there's so much to talk about here and so the segment they hand out the discs to everyone of which allows for them to become lighter as they begin to store their weight which is so fascinating yeah this is what's this running is through your mind thinking about engineering, shit, the discs that are being used here in general where, well, where this you is at? this is i guess i guess it's kind of alimantic but it's more they refer Fair to chemical. it as a metal Yeah, line. I, I said alimantic. It's yeah. metallic art. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... No, man. I don't fucking know. It's so fucking different. Because it... Like, this is different than the cubes. So now we've got cubes and discs. Like, we, we've got circles and squares that we're dealing with. <laughs> and that's a good way wrong. to delineate, <laughs> delineate between alimancy and ferrochemy. But it feels like... This this makes somebody a ferrochemist, a, a, a ferrochemist, as opposed to allowing somebody to use innate or augment innate allomancy. Like this, I'd like to see more of it, more of where this comes from. Okay. Because, I mean, hypothetically then, ferrochemy is no longer a bloodborne thing. It, it is a purchased thing. It could be disseminated, which is some of the fears that they have on the other side with hemallergy, right? So like hemallergy is already 
this idea that you could imbue soldiers with it. But it's already fucking happened with these discs to some degree. Yeah. Like you can swap them out like a fucking CD-ROM and be given different ferrochemical powers, apparently. Yeah. yeah. It's... Man! What a place to end, right? Am I right? Yeah, and, I mean, this this turns hypothetically... It doesn't. Never mind. I, I was thinking that we could use this to turn Wayne into another uh, Miles. But no, just, compounding is different. Just, yeah. yeah. Compounding different. Although, uh, if you the gave... Cube could. What's up? Cube could. If, if you Temporarily. have... I don't think so, actually, because I think you have to be able to burn your metal mind in order to compound. Oh, is that what it... Okay. Yeah. You can get new metal mines, of course, but you have to actually burn the metal mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's what leads me to talk the other way. But regardless, I mean, it still means the, he could be made a compounder with hemolurgy. Um, there's nothing to say that you couldn't. Let's go. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Let's go, man. That said, that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Next mm-hmm. week, we are going to be reading to the end of this book, PJ. You're going to be caught up with me almost next week. But before, actually, factually, we're we're at Sunday today for us. This time next week, you are going to be caught up with me, except for Stormlight and Warbreaker. So, yeah, that'll be fun. It's going to be interesting. Be. So, to that point, next week we read chapter twenty one through the end. We're just sending it. It's it's all or nothing because <laughs> PJ everything. has to finish it before this week. I do before spoilers <laughs> abound and everything else could possibly happen. He has to finish mm-hmm. it. So I mean, not truly, only that, I'll probably finish it tonight. Yeah, because I think we're recording the episode tomorrow. But <laughs> I have to also sit down and do notes. That said, so we're wrapping this book up. We are also going to be reading Secret History very quickly and also putting out the wrap-up episode. So my recommendation for you at home is if you need a refresher on Secret History, after you finish Bands of Morning, jump in right away. There's a chance that we might do it in one episode as opposed to two, which it is on the schedule. We might release it in two chunks. We're going to have to figure that out, but I just want to let you know that if we don't cover it in two episodes, it will be one episode, and it will be between now and November 24th, which is the third. That's Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving. That will be the date-ish of that episode. So okay. get one or two episodes. There we go. Holy shit, PJ. Yeah. We're here. We've arrived almost. So mm-hmm. very excited. So that's where we're going to leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for keeping our show's lights on. You can find our our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, and all of our social media accounts all in one very location yes and just in case you aren't able to find those for some reason because you can't click a link we love you still but we want to let you know that you can search us out words whiskey pod on twitter instagram and reddit words and whiskey show at gmail.com patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey and our t-shirts are on t public fun fact there's a new shirt that just launched secretly today so yeah go go check it out before it disappears because it will disappear in the next week or so, but it will come back. 
So it's a temporary <laughs> release. Go get it while you can. It's an event release. We'll call it that. Yeah. Super excited. I'm so excited to do the rest of this. We're so close, PJ. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Man, it's going to be so much fun. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Thank you all for your support. We love you very, very much. And we're excited to bring you the most intricate and deep diving experiences when it comes to the Cosmere. I'm going to make that claim. I know that's not true, but I'm making Wow. Yeah, that was bold. <laughs> I mean, the 17th chart exists, so I don't want to try to take away anyone's claim. I'm not trying to reduce us or anything like that, but we do... We got we dive deep. We got a nice disclaimer on top of a lot of things, which is that until you've read it all. Yeah. No, thank you again so much. Make sure that you leave us a five-star review if you haven't already. Otherwise, Erin will come for your throat. And believe you me, when it comes to these Greenbone episodes, she is going to be coming for your throat for those reviews. So it's best that you get with it now <laughs> before it's too late. It'll be too late. <laughs> Absolutely. It will yeah. be too late. Cool. All right. Okay. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.